we've gotten to the point in the movie, guys, where we've met the majority of our prime characters. We have Brad and Janet, the engaged couple, of course. And then we have Riff Raff, who he's kind of the handyman of the house. He's dressed kind of like a butler and he has a hunchback and he's got an all too welcoming face, wouldn't you say? Yes. <laughs> uh, we have Magenta, who is like the maid type character. She does have a maid dress on the whole time, the majority of the time, rather. And she and Riff Raff kind of share a special relationship, which we'll see gradually as the movie goes along. And then, of course, there's Columbia, who we met when she sat atop the jukebox, and she had her solo and her tap dance, and she's known as the groupie, which, in case you're unfamiliar, is a girl who follows a band or musician and hoping to get to know them. That's the that's like the official definition, but I know that it has other connotations too. So I laugh. <laughs> take it how you will. Never know what way. <laughs> She's basically a chick who likes to sleep with musicians. And who can blame her? <laughs> yeah, who could blame her? And so, among them in this big scary house that they've just come across are the Transylvanians. And this is a group of people who are, they look very festive in in the most interesting way. Like, they're wearing tuxedos and sunglasses, and mm-hmm. they look like you told your four-year-old to dress up for a party, and he came out wearing <laughs> a suit. And- that is the best explanation ever. Like, they must have been, like, the clothes that you forgot to change out of your kids clothes so they're like a size too small because all their pants are kind of short yes like none of their clothes is like perfect like and then and then their jackets aren't even like full jackets some of them are like quarter waist jackets or whatever you would call that yeah like I guess those are kind of fancy though aren't they aren't they considered like tuxedo I yeah they are technically tuxedos but they're not like your traditional uh, these look more like uh, character tuxedos as opposed to like a, a wedding tuxedo, I would think. I agree. I agree. So they, so yeah, they just, they look like someone told them to dress up and they weren't sure what that meant. But they're Transylvanians, so they're, you know, they're going to do it their <laughs> way. Um, and so the reason why they are all gathered here is because this is the Transylvanian Convention. And we are about to meet our host. Finally! So, <laughs> so this is a big moment. Um, so we have our three characters, Riff Raff, Columbia, Magenta, and all the Transylvanians have just performed the time warp, and they all collapse onto the floor. And Brad and Janet are just standing there. She's like, say something. And he's like, <laughs> say, wouldn't you know how to Madison? <laughs> And so Janet's just kind of like, oh. And so all the Transylvanians like sat up and they looked at each other like, what? And so Janet's like, Brad, please, let's get out of here. And this is when we start to hear a really subtle beat and the music starts to come in. And if you're in the audience participation, you start clapping and you chant sex and violence, sex and violence. (laughs) And so Janet and Brad start backing out of the room, 
you know, never turning their back on the group. And as they're backing out, all the Transylvanians are starting to get up off the floor and they're smiling and they look like they are like getting hyped up for something. And Janet is trying to convince them that they need to leave. But Brad is insisting like, oh, they're just doing some folk dancing and I haven't used the phone yet. So I'm not leaving until I get to a phone. (laughs) And she, it's, god damn it, Brad. Yes, thank you. (laughs) You just want to shake him. It's so frustrating. And so finally... As they're, as they're nearing the lift, which is right behind them, we see that someone is coming down in the lift and they have these kick-ass set of white heels and they are just like stomping to the beat as the lift lowers. And finally, Janet just starts pleading with Brad and she's like, I'm cold, I'm wet, and I'm just plain scared. And then she sees someone standing in the lift and she has no words. She's so shocked and frightened at this point. And Brad is not even paying attention. And he's like, I'm here. There's nothing to worry about. And at this moment, Frankenfurter turns around in the elevator. Janet faints. And we meet the sweet transvestite. How'd you do, I? See, you've met my faithful hand in hand. He's just a little broad dime because when you... Brad is completely shocked at what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is uh, Tim Curry uh, as Frankenfurter. And he, so far what we can see of him is that he's wearing a long black cape with Mm -hmm. like a, I would say a silver lining. And his makeup is amazing. Impeccable. He has this dramatic blue eyeshadow and these shiny glittery red lips like lined perfectly. Yes, and they're almost like a, a a deeper red. You know what I mean? Like they're not like that bright like red. They're like a maroon accented red, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not your traditional cherry like you know Malibu car red. Like it's a deep red. And he looks great, and he's all covered up. <laughs> and so he exits the elevator and he heads down the red carpet into the room and Frankenfurter gets up on the stage. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite. Mm-hmm. And with that, Frankenfurter throws his cape off and we see the incredibleness that is Dr. Frankenfurter in his entirety. And he's wearing a black corset and he's got fishnet stockings on and he's, he just looks fabulous. How would you describe it? Oh my gosh. Like, first of all, the body banging. Like I, to be Tim Curry, like for, I can't even imagine anybody else playing this role. And Tim is just perfectly built for this character. He has the most amazing facial expressions during the song. And you can't help but fall in love with him. He just like oozes sexuality during this, right? I totally agree. And... Mind you, I am strictly Bickley, but Tim Curry is fucking hot in this movie. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> which I do want to say, if you read the playwright, in, um, it actually does refer to um, Dr. Frankenfurter as a woman or as a she. And um, I'm not sure if that's actually the same for the um, movie. I forgot to look that up. You know, I was thinking about that because I know that in the Laverne Cox one, they went ahead and made Frank a trans woman. Isn't that right? Yes. Okay. You're absolutely correct. I um I always figured Frank had a dick. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I also think that um Frank is also maybe the type who would wear a bulge. Um and uh I also think that it's up to interpretation. Like if you think that Frank is a a trans woman then yeah, he is. Um because in actuality Frank is pansexual. Uh-huh, 100%. So it, so I think that, um, I mean, I, I don't think it changes the character either way. I think Frank is a figure of empowerment. Frank is a figure of uh, self-acceptance and self-love. Uh, and regardless of his gender, his color, or what he identifies as, like, the icon, the symbol doesn't change. Well said. So uh, at this point, Brad and Janet are still pretty kind of taken aback but they go ahead and approach Frank and Brad's like oh can we use your phone you know we'll just say where we are then go back to the car and so this is at this point Frank throws a cup of water at the camera and he looks at them and he's like oh you got caught with a flat how about that which can I ask you do you think Frank gave him that gave them that flat tire um I feel like it was kind of planned yeah which leads you back kind of to the over at the um, Frankenstein place, the way Riff Raff is looking out. It almost makes you wonder if maybe he like shot the tire out or something with the laser beam. It made, well, it made me wonder if that one motorcyclist that they saw set something up for them. Mm, that's a good point. And then too. they saw it coming back. Yeah, that could be true too. Or maybe that motorcyclist was Frank. It, you know what? You're absolutely like onto something. That would be a really cool um, theory. I have some theories about this movie, but again, I'll get into them later when, so when they come into yeah. play. But that is one thing that I, I've always wondered because obviously, and it's like you said, we see Frank and Magenta and Riff Raff and Columbia in that first scene at the church. So, I mean, we could give them the benefit of the doubt and say like, oh, they're playing completely different characters and the joke is that we see them again later. But what if it was them in disguise and then, you know, A, B, and C? Like, mm. it was a setup from the beginning. Like, do you, do you suppose that that's a theory in some people's mind? It very, it very well could be, yeah. And then Frank just played it off the whole time. Yeah, because he... Yeah, for whatever reason, he wanted them to be there. And, of course, Brad sang the plans out loud, so everybody knew where they were going. Exactly. Good point. Oof. Okay, let's <laughs> let's save the con- let's do a conspiracy theory episode. For conspiracy Ooh. theory movie episode. Okay, I'm about it. Let's do it. Okay, cool. Um, and so Frank insists that he'll help them. He says he's going to get them a satanic mechanic but he never actually does that no he really doesn't (laughs) and so then he did lie and so 
Frank takes his place in his kick-ass throne on the stage, and Riff Raff, Magenta, and Columbia come and sit around him. And this is a really iconic shot in itself. If you Google the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a lot of versions of this picture are going to pop up. And this is probably one of the more famous images taken from the film. Mm -hmm. And so Frank starts explaining that he has been making a man. And as he does this, as he says this, he strokes Riff Raff's hair. And when you're in the audience, you're like, you call that a man? (laughs) (laughs) And so Frank's saying like, he built himself a man with blonde hair and a tan and He's good for releasing his tension. I love that pause. <laughs> it's yes, it's so because you know what he like. You know what he wants to say. You know what it what is coming, and then he just kind of keeps it PG. <laughs> so then Frank gets up off the throne, and he just runs right back down the red carpet and back up into the elevator, and he tells them to come up to the lab. And see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. And then he tells them that he's going to help them out and he'll remove the cause, but not the symptom. And then he takes off like a boss. (laughs) This song. I love this song. I love this scene. Tim Curry is my favorite actor of all time and yeah he's the man so of course this song as well as all the other songs was written by richard o'brien so i love this song because of so many things of course one is tim is my number one he is the pedestal he is the end-all be-all actor to me like Mm -hmm. i've been a fan of his since i was a child i love his voice i love his acting his singing one of my favorite parts in this entire film is the reveal. Like when he throws that cape off mm-hmm. and then the entire film just shifts. Everything changes after that. Um, sometimes I wish that I could erase the film from my memory just so I could watch it again and not knowing what's coming. Because that part is so iconic. And like I said, Tim just looks great. He looks, he looks so good in this movie. <laughs> he pulled off those costumes like no one else. Yes, he really does. So I actually got to meet Tim Curry at a convention in 2017. Oh! Shout out to my friend Martha who drove to Dallas with me. We drove during a storm weekend and it was scary. Like I remember we were driving into Dallas and there was just this large black cloud hovering over it and I was like I knew Dallas was evil but now you're just showing off and so because by the way guys everybody hates Dallas fuck Dallas oh gosh (laughs) way to go Dallas Cowboys I'm the person who does it (laughs) that's another conversation guys Uh, you can find her on Instagram I hate you so I remember the day of the convention was awesome uh, when it came time to meet and take a photo with Tim, we stood in line and we were just waiting. We were so excited. And just a few boots down the way was Jeffrey Dean Morgan from Walking Dead. Oh! <laughs> and yes, and he was signing autographs. And then people started cheering. And then we realized it was because he was dancing. <laughs> oh, really? I'm blushing. Yes, he was adorable. It was so cute. Oh, um, he's really cute. Oh my god, he is 
Mm, yes, I'm smitten <laughs> for fucking Megan and a fucking Barbara. Bat. Yes, I I do not like him in the show, or I did not like him, but I am like in real person. Yes. Yeah, he's hot. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so the lines would go like one by one to go meet him, and so what they would do is like they would take the line back there and they'd go behind a curtain. And then Tim was sitting there. And, of course, he was in his wheelchair because this is post-stroke. But this was when he started doing conventions again and meeting fans again and doing autograph sessions. So it was good to see that he was still wanting to interact with fans, that he was feeling up for it. So I think that was cool. And so Martha met him first. And so we each got to take, like, a professional photo with him. So, like, there was a photographer there, and they printed it out for you within, like, two minutes. And so Martha went first, and then I walked up to him. And I was like, hi, Tim, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And he he said, thank you. And then right before they took the photo, I leaned in and I just kind of like joked. And I was like, don't get strung out by the way I look. And he smiled in the photo. Oh, did he really? Yeah, I'll have to post it on Instagram (laughs) and the blog. Please do. He was awesome, guys. It was brief, but it was totally worth it. It was a moment, and it was awesome. So <laughs> That's amazing. What an amazing story and moment in your life. It was good times. But then, like, I remember Martha and I had to drive home the next day, and it was like a storm. Like, the storm had gotten bad, and all the news outlets were saying, like, if you don't have to leave, please stay home. The weather is going to be really, really bad. And I was like, I can't stay in Dallas. For one, it's Dallas. For two, I, I'm not going to pay for another hotel night. And three... This was the day of WrestleMania. I had to go home and watch it. Yeah, of course. I had to go home. I had to be home one time. You've never missed one, right? Uh, not since I started back, like, not since I got back into wrestling, which was, like, 2013, 2012. I took a 10-year hiatus. Did you? I did, yeah. Totally okay. (laughs) I think we all do at some point. I think so. I think so. That's amazing, though. That's a long run. Yeah, man. Still going. So, um, another reason why I love this moment in the movie is because this is the moment when we meet the villain. And everything you thought you knew is going to shift. Uh, I know a lot of people don't see Frank as the villain because Frank is such a fun character. He has great songs. He's entertaining. It may be like way left field, but there are even some things that he says that make sense to you. And so you want to like Frank. But Frank is technically one of the bad guys, Mm -hmm. in a way. Heroes are fun, but villains have more fun, I think. (laughs) I would definitely agree. As much as I love a hero's triumphant ending, I can dig a really good villain. And Frank is a really good villain. Like, he's a fun villain. I feel like this is a movie where you might switch whose side you're on while the film goes on. Like, you start off, obviously, you love Brad and Janet, but then, you know, you meet Frank, and he's cool too, but then you feel bad for Riff Raff and Magenta, and then you sympathize with Columbia. Like, you you really don't know whose side to be on because they all have very human traits, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's like, and, and same thing goes with, I think, your favorite character also changes a lot too. I would agree. 
And that's one thing that I noticed when I first watched this movie was that like sometimes Magenta seems genuinely amused by Frank's antics and then sometimes you can tell on her face that she can't fucking stand him. So even they're not, like, they all don't really like each other, kind of, in some degree. Like, Columbia has a love-hate relationship with Frank, but she's overall cooperative because she loves him. And these character relationships are so complicated. I think you're absolutely right. You can see her, like, roll her eyes, and she kind of, like, sighs and, like, side-eyes and look at Riff Raff. Right, yeah, like, she's... Sometimes she seems like like she's genuinely glad to be there, and then sometimes she looks like she wishes she were dead. Mm-hmm. So they're always changing their minds too. Mm-hmm. So that's those are just some reasons why I really love this uh, scene and this song and this character and everything from that entrance to that exit is just fantastic film. I think so. Some fun facts about the production of the scene. In an interview, Tim Curry said that wearing makeup in the film was a little easier because there were two makeup artists who were constantly there to fix it. But at the same time, it was also difficult because the makeup had to look the same every single day for the sake of continuity, as opposed to when you're on stage, no one looks that closely, little subtle changes can be made, substitutions, etc. But on film, it all has to be exactly the way it was before. So... I'm sure that was just fun (laughs) to sit through. And it took hours, right, to do his makeup. I was reading it took like three to five hours, depending on which makeup artist. Yeah, that's what I heard too. I heard it took like anywhere between three to five hours. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, This I thought was really cool. And this is one of the anniversary tribute shows that I think you've mentioned. And this is for the Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans out there. (laughs) In 1991, Frankenberger was played by none other than Anthony Stewart Head, who plays Giles. I think he's that smart librarian guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in 2000, for the 25th anniversary special, Anthony sang for Frankenberger. He was one of two actors who had done the role on stage and then made an appearance for the anniversary special. And he actually showed up. He, he wore eyeliner. He wore lipstick, he had a leather jacket on, and he looked so good, but he totally looked like Giles from Buffy. Like, I couldn't not think of it. That's so funny. Can you imagine this movie without Tim Curry? Not at all. Even at the time, a lot of these actors were unknown. But even now, I can't think of who that would have been. And apparently, there was a chance that it might have been a guy named Jonathan Kramer who Richard O'Brien mentioned. Jonathan Kramer was originally set to play Frankenfurter, but then Tim Curry arrived, he auditioned, and then Jonathan did not stand a chance, according to Richard O'Brien. So, wow. I did look up Jonathan Kramer, and aside from maybe a few TV credits, he never really did anything notable. wasn't meant to be crazy to think of like there's a universe like if you believe in the alternate universe theory that there's a universe where he was frankenfurter and maybe his career took off and maybe (laughs) it even didn't but it's crazy to think i can't imagine and this was actually tim curry's first film Mm -hmm. so um i can't i can't even fathom the idea of someone else playing this role 
I know. It's crazy. I'm really glad we ended up with Tim. I'm glad he stumbled upon him outside that gym that day because... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because it could have been so different. It could have been so different, but I'm, no, I'm glad the it's universe fine. decided for us. The universe knew who was supposed to play Frankenberger. Yeah, you're right. I don't think... I think the universe knew it could not have been any other way. Exactly. <laughs> so as far as uh, some covers that I found of Sweet Transvestite... Bates Motel, which is a goth metal band from Vancouver, released a metal cover of this in 1996. We have Apocalypse Hoboken, who did it for the Rocky Horror Punk Rock Show. We have T.S.O.L., also known as The Sounds of Liberty, which is a punk band who covered this song. Uh, A man named Thomas Borchert, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, covered this for his 2010 album called If I Sing. And then I also found, I couldn't find very much information on her, so maybe she's changed her name, but I stumbled upon a drag queen named Voldo, and she did like a techno-ish sweet transvestite cover. Ooh, that sounds fun. I'll put that on the blog. And then we also have a group called Batlord who covered this for the Gothy Horror Picture Show, which is a bunch of goth versions of the soundtrack mm-hmm. uh, that was released in 2012. And then, of course, there are many more out there. Um, I found a lot of uh, cast recordings as well. They're basically endless because various casts got the chance to go ahead and record an album. And so you'll see if, if you have Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, you type in Sweet Transvestite, there will be quite a list. So I invite you to check those out. Um, let us know which ones you like the best. I know there are plenty of good ones out there. That's amazing. Maybe even some like that we haven't heard of that you can share with us. Yes, guys. If, if there's anything that you guys know of that we don't mention, please let us know. We want to expand our minds. I agree. Frank has gone upstairs and Magenta and Riff Raff start taking Brad and Janet's clothes off of them. And Janet's like, Brad? And he's just like, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll play along for now and pull out the aces when the time is right, which whatever the fuck that means, Brad. I know. <laughs> and so uh, as they're getting undressed, Columbia's like, oh, you're very lucky to be invited to Frank's laboratory. Some people would give their right arm for the privilege. And he's like, people like you, maybe? And she's like, huh, I've seen it. And I don't do laundry. <laughs> she tosses their clothes. <laughs> and so by now they're in their underwear. And they go into the lift. They all get into the lift together. It's Brad, Janet, Riff Raff, Magenta, and Columbia. They're all in this fucking elevator together. And they go upstairs. And they enter this giant pink lab yeah and standing just in front of them is frank and he is now in a green lab robe Mm -hmm. with a pink triangle above his chest and so he's just standing there waiting for them yes and one of my things that you mentioned in this whole scene i love the fact that they're in like these like whitey tidies like super prudish underwear while everyone else is in like black and glittery and glamorous and you know just really fun underwear it's just it's another way that Richard show how they um, showed how their characters truly are 
they're basically like blank slates. Like they, they've just kind of, they exited the womb and they just kind of did the bare minimum human being things. And now they're basically canvases in this house. And they're going to get painted, (laughs) y'all. Puns. Okay. (laughs) So everybody exits the lift and Frank officially meets Brad and Janet. And so he gives them each a lab coat so that they will feel less vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) And then Frank goes up onto his little stage to make his speech. And by now, all the Transylvanians have joined them in the lab. They're actually standing up on like... It's kind of like a balcony on top of a lab. Like it's it's a really giant lab and then it's got... One of those kind of like fancy archway stairs, you know, where it's got two entrances on either side, but they're more like ramps. Yes. And then they go up and then it's like a balcony. Yes, that's the word. So all the Transylvanians are gathered on the balcony and this is what they're here to see. This is what they've been invited for because Frank has created this creature and this is the unveiling. So Frank makes a speech and he goes up on stage and Magenta and Columbia are on either side of him. And I love this part because he's giving this very dramatic speech about how he discovered the secret to life and how he came about creating this perfect man. And one of the lines, one of the audience participation parts is like when he says, that elusive ingredient, that, what's your favorite Star Trek character? Spark. God damn it. I love that shit so much. It cracks me up so fucking much. I love Star Trek, guys. Don't judge me. (laughs) And so then, after Frank is done with his dramatic speech, he walks over to this tank. And in this tank, which is filled with water, there's also a mummified-looking figure, which is really just like a really mannequin-type figure that's wrapped in white bandages. Right. The lights go out in the lab, and there's only certain spotlights, and they're flashing in and out of the room as Frank starts adding color to the tank. And then we see a rainbow start to form in the water, and we hear, like, these mechanical sounds and this whirring sound, and it sounds like everything's you know, starting to come alive. And sure enough, the figure starts to rise up out of the tank, which is now suddenly drained, which I never quite understood, but I guess it's fine. (laughs) Right. Magenta unmasks the figure. And it's this very tan, blue-eyed, blonde-haired character. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know much about him yet. But Frank calls him Rocky. Oh, Rocky. (laughs) So this is our title character, guys. You came to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and here's Rocky. (laughs) Rocky latches on to the, I don't know, I can't remember what it was called or if they even named it anything, but he latches on to the thing that lowered from overhead that added all the colors. And Riff Raff pulls it back up and so Rocky's still hanging on and Rocky ends up floating above the tank and he's scared because this is his first day in the world technically yeah it's like his birthday yes exactly it's literally his birthday and so Rocky starts singing the sword of Damocles which 
Sorry, guys, if this is one of your favorites, but we chose to make this one of our honorable mentions instead. Right, right, because we could talk about every song if we really had to, but we had to choose. We limited ourselves to five, so it was hard. <laughs> yes, yes, but it will be one of our honorable mentions. Literally, the rest of the soundtrack is honorable mentions. They will all be on the playlist, and they will all be on the blog, so check those out. So at this point, Rocky has his song, and Magenta and Columbia unwrap him, and he is basically an Adonis. He's like the perfect male specimen if you are into like completely fit, like zero body fat. Yes, exactly. Men. If that's your jam, then he's the perfect man, period. Mm -hmm. And so Rocky ends up, he immediately acts out. He's basically kind of like a child and he's not all that smart because he's all muscle. So he starts running around the lab and he's got Frank chasing him up and down the ramp and Frank is really just trying to, like, latch on to him, to hug him, to kiss him, to, you know, get him nice and close. But it freaks Rocky out. It makes Rocky anxious. And so Rocky keeps running away. Mm-hmm. And it's a really it's a really comical scene. The more I watch Rocky Horror, the more precious I think Rocky really is. He's just so dumb and cute. Yes, he is, like, a toddler. Yes, I agree. He's very simple. He's very, he just wants to have fun. He just wants to run around. He, certain things get his attention and, and he wants to go pay attention to them. Like, yes. he's <laughs> like, ooh, squirrel. <laughs> very much ooh, squirrel. <laughs> so finally, like, he, Rocky ends up back in his tank and Frank it kind of scolds him, but then he tells him, like, oh, well, I'm prepared to forgive you. And so at this point, Rocky gets gifts for his birthday, and Frank gives him a bunch of weights, and like Frankie said, they're all kind of wrapped up, and they look like candy, which is actually mm-hmm. really cool. <laughs> and uh, what's that thing that he gives him that's shaped like a penis? Uh, the one that looks like a horse, or that's called a horse? Is that what it's called? The one with the that's two bars what... in the middle? Yeah, that's called a horse, yeah. Okay, I never knew what that was called, but... Yeah, that's more of like a gymnast thing. That's not really like... Which is interesting. Um, I don't know if that was something that maybe people used when they worked out in like boxing rings or like working out, but that's something that's very like gymnast specific. So I did always think that that was interesting that they gave him that as a present. Yeah, yeah. And I remember... Because this was the first scene that I saw when I first saw this movie. And the part where, like, Frank brings that, I guess, well, you called it a horse. So Frank brings out the horse. And my sister was like, see, look. Uh, she was, like, laughing. And she was like, see what it's shaped like? And I was, like, 10. <laughs> and I was like, um, do I say no and she has to explain it? Or do I say yes and admit I know what a penis looks like? <laughs> I didn't answer her. I wouldn't have either because I don't think there's a right answer to that one. There's Is not there a right answer? It was a loaded question. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to lie. I don't think I knew what a penis looked like when I was 10. I mean, I it, well, I, at that point, I was in, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. So we had already started watching like those period movies or like the period videos. And so we had to learn about puberty. Oh, yeah. So it, yeah. I saw the outline. <laughs> anyway not the point here's how the outline (laughs) so and this is when frank is singing i can make you a man which is 
because Rocky and his image is based on the Charles Atlas ads, mm-hmm. I Can Make You a Man is actually a slogan that Charles Atlas used to use for his gym. And so that's kind of where the song came from. It actually used to be called the Charles Atlas song, but then they changed it to I Can Make You a Man. And sometimes you'll find it in parentheses, Charles Atlas song. So it depends on what version you're looking at. And so (laughs) Frank basically promises Rocky that in just seven days and seven nights, he can make (laughs) a man. Does it take seven nights? Doesn't it take just one? Aren't you like, you know? When you're not a virgin, it's about like you becoming a man. Or is there something I'm missing? Because this one did confuse me. Because I was like, wait a second. Because like, are you not not a virgin when you have sex the first time? Because that's what this song alluded to me to. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I know this is an honorable mention, but I'm confused. Um, I don't know why it takes seven days and seven nights, but basically like because we we've been talking about how rocky's basically a kid he's he's basically a boy that's true so i think frank frank was basically going to take seven days to groom him Mm -hmm. and maybe that doesn't entirely entirely mean sex okay um so maybe that's and so, I don't know, maybe he was going to take him hunting. I don't know what constitutes becoming a man. <laughs> Guys, weigh in. Please message us at Hey Soundtrack City on Instagram. What does it take to be a man? Yeah, I guess so. Because okay, I, I don't know. I mean, we don't have penises, so I guess that makes sense as to why we don't know. What did you have to do to become a man when you became a man? Have you become men yet? Let us know. We want you to weigh in. I love it. I love it. But no, I never really... I guess growing up, like when I was, I guess, younger, I I immediately thought like, oh, they're going to fuck for seven days. That's what I thought too. Yeah, that's what I always thought. But it, I'm not sure. Unfortunately, we only get about seven hours with these characters. So, um, not sure, not sure. But now here's one of my other favorite parts. <laughs> and I'm so excited to talk about this. So... Frank and Rocky have their little moment and Frank wraps his arms around Rocky and he's laughing because he's happy. And then the buzzer on the freezer in the lab starts going off and Frank like screams and he runs away from the door as it starts to lower. And it's this big red chamber looking door that starts to lower out down into the lab and onto the floor and we see Columbia, and she just screams, and she's like, Eddie! And she gets really excited, and sure enough, character named Eddie, played by Meatloaf, busts out of the freezer on a motorcycle, and he sings, Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul. Eddie gets off the bike and all the Transylvanians are frozen and everyone's just staring at him and he's got his saxophone and he's just rocking out. And I love Eddie so much. And it turns out guys that Frank and Eddie used to be lovers, which is awkward. Mm-hmm. Very. And one thing you'll notice about Eddie is after he takes off his helmet, he's got this big gash on his forehead. And the reason for that is because Frank cut Eddie's head open, split his brain in two, and used half of it to make Rocky. Which they don't clearly say 
right? I don't feel like they ever like clearly just say that. Like it's implied and there's like a lyric in the song, right? There's a few lines, yeah. They weren't even actually very clear as to like the relationship connections because obviously Columbia and Eddie are really in love and we see that throughout this song. But then Frank and Eddie were a thing. And so that's also weird. And so it's a convoluted little love triangle we have going here. And it might right. even be bigger than a triangle. <laughs> but yes, there are a few moments like later on in the film how Frank says that Rocky is acting just the way that Eddie did. And do you think it was a mistake splitting his brain between the two? Right. And that's when Magenta starts yelling at him. And she's like, I grow weary of this world. When are we going to return to Transylvania? Yeah. So it's not until later that we find out that that's what happened, but we can get an idea for what happened between Eddie and Frank because Rocky ends up having a wandering eye and Eddie obviously wandered over to Columbia. So that's why Frank had to get rid of him and make a perfect man that wouldn't leave him. So sad. It is sad, but I can't blame Frank if I could build a perfect man that I knew would love me. I <laughs> but I think that this proves that you can't really build someone just to love you. Like, you can't, like, even your creation can still turn away from you. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in addition to that, you can't groom someone into loving you. You can't mold a person's brain or body, even though Frank kind of tried. Exactly. And so there's a lot of little life lessons in here because... It, and it sucks because, again, Frank is a likable character. Frank is a likable villain. You kind of want him to be happy. I agree. Like, it's it's really hard for me to, like, not love him, even though he is the villain, like you said. Yeah, exactly. And so during Eddie's song, he actually kind of gives Rocky a look. And Frank doesn't like it because he's stealing his thunder and then we see that Columbia and Eddie have a thing. And so Columbia runs up and into Eddie's arms and they kind of do a little dance and they've kind of reunited. So you know that there was something between them. And Eddie's singing one of my favorite songs from this whole soundtrack. Such a good song. One of the reasons why I love this song is, well, A, it's literally the first song I ever heard from this movie, and B, like, I, it breaks my heart every time to watch this scene, because Eddie starts the second verse, and he says, my head used to swim from the perfume I smelled, my hands kind of fumbled with her white plastic belt, I'd taste her baby pink lipstick, and that's when I'd melt. And he's slowly approaching Columbia and he just, without even breaking his gaze, he takes his saxophone off and throws it over to Brad and he just like takes Columbia into his arms and then he like almost kisses her but then doesn't. <laughs> That's such a sweet love song, really. And I just love the look in Eddie's eyes, like when he's staring at her and it, it makes me teary a little because that's the moment that you realize like how strong their love really was, even if it's just for a brief moment and even if they were only together for so long. Um, I just, I love that verse. I love those lyrics. And I think Meatloaf did an incredible job with this really small but really impactful role. 
100% agree. You can, you just don't forget who Eddie is. He's so memorable. And like you said, even though he has a smaller part, he's unforgettable. So a couple fun facts about the scene. While Meatloaf was practicing for the music for the stage play, Richard O'Brien approached him and he said that, you know, I know that the lyrics and the tempo is really fast, so don't worry about having to sing the whole thing. And Meatloaf didn't really understand what he meant. And Richard was like, well, there's like, there's two or three actors in London who have difficulty singing Hot Patootie. So it's, it's word heavy and it's really fast paced. So don't worry about, you know, not getting it right. And Meatloaf literally took the lyrics and he insisted he could do it. And he did it with no problem. Exactly. And he was phenomenal at it. Like, didn't miss a beat. The wall that Eddie breaks through was partially ice, partially wax. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this is, um, oh my gosh. As much as I love this scene, um, I feel like now I appreciate it more than ever now that I know what they went through to film it. Because they went through some shit. So for the close-ups of Eddie, he's being pushed in a wheelchair with the handlebars and the windshield of the motorcycle in front of him. To get the shot they wanted, they mounted a camera onto the windshield, which added weight to the front. And so when the bottom of the ramp met the floor, the weight gave and everything fell forward. And so Meatloaf's stand-in, he tried to run in to help, but his foot caught like the edge of the ramp and he broke his leg trying to run to help Meatloaf. <laughs> he was dedicated at least. <laughs> he was dedicated. And so Meatloaf was also like on the floor and he had like a little cut on his head, but the whole crew rushed to Meatloaf like, are you okay? Are you okay? And he was like, no, don't look at me. Don't go check on him. <laughs> and the stand-in was screaming in pain. Oh, bless his heart. And that's not all. <laughs> but wait, there's more. So there's the stuntman who rode the motorcycle for Meatloaf because Meatloaf knew he wouldn't be able to handle a, a mm-hmm. motorcycle on his own. So the stuntman does the part where you see Eddie drive up the ramp and around on the balcony, and then he does it again, and all the Transylvanians are moving out of the way. So when the stuntman did that, his first loop around the ramp went really well. And then when he went again, the motorcycle got too close to the edge, and he and the motorcycle fell, and the motorcycle landed on top of the stuntman. What? And this was an old 1941 military bike, and it was heavy. Dang. And so Meatloaf ran over to the stuntman, and he said that it must have been adrenaline because he he would not be able to pick that motorcycle up if he tried. But in that moment, he was able to pick it up just, like, not just enough to, like, pull it off of the stuntman and pull it out of the way. And then everybody gathered around the stuntman and the stuntman just laid there with his eyes closed and he wasn't moving. And then he opened his eyes and he looked around and he said, okay, let's do it again. What the hell? Is he a robot? He went on to explain that as a stuntman, when something goes wrong, he does not move right away. He waits. And he he takes a moment to check his entire body to see what hurts. He checks his feet, his shins, his legs, his knees, his hips, his back, like everything all the way up to his head. Mm -hmm. And 
when he can lay there for a few seconds and he knows that he's not hurting, he knows that he's okay. So that's what he did. That's amazing to be able to, like, test all of that. Dude, I really think that the Oscars need to start giving away awards for best stunt because stunt men and women can lose their fucking lives on movie sets. Like, they should be acknowledged. Men, I agree with you. They do so much. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, granted, people like Tom Cruise, I guess he does his own stunts, but a good chunk of actors, you know, they don't have that same luxury. They'd rather do the safer things because, honestly, if you can hire a stunt woman, why wouldn't you, right? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, then if they're contracted to the movie, then, yeah, they're going to bring them in, but they really should be acknowledged. Whatever they make is not enough. Oh, I doubt they make anywhere near what they truly deserve. They probably deserve more than the actor because they're filling in for a role. They still have to somewhat act and then they have to put their life on the line. Mm-hmm. Stunts are dangerous. Exactly. Dangerous. Exactly. Wow, that's crazy. What's some, Those are some awesome facts, Nisa. Eddie has kind of taken over the room. Everybody's dancing to his song. The Transylvanians are having a good time and they're dancing and Columbia's happy to see him and Riff Raff and Magenta have snuck into the freezer and they're dancing, which is so funny. And they're so cute while they're dancing. And so at this point, Frank decides that Eddie needs to go away. So Frank goes while Eddie is singing and he grabs a pickaxe. And so Eddie and Columbia have this one last moment where he picks her up into his arms and he puts her on his motorcycle. And when he turns around, he finds Frank and Frank is stalking him with the pickaxe. And so Eddie starts trying to run away and Frank just starts whacking. And so he chases him into the freezer and Frank goes after him. And we don't see anything graphic, but... We hear a lot of squishing, and then we see a lot of blood when Frank exits the freezer alone. It's one of the sadder scenes. It is really sad. I liked Eddie a lot. Um, And again, he's an important character. He's important to a lot of these characters. He's part of the reason why some of these characters are here uh, or will be here. Mm -hmm. But I think it's kind of perfect that he was just in and out with that one song. Although, I mean, who can't get enough of meatloaf, right? (laughs) love meatloaf his voice i think part of the reason i love this song is just because it's hype like i'm i feel happy when i hear this song it just excites me all over again like i'm hearing it for the first time every time and maybe i don't find meatloaf particularly attractive for my taste nothing against those who do uh it's it's the bandage on the head for me (laughs) <laughs> right like he's eddie eddie is like badass musician like rock star-esque like he's he seems like he'd be cool to hang out with <laughs> and i love the way he picks up columbia like nothing i know it's so cute they are so cute together the little moments that they have they may be brief yes. but they are adorable my heart melts every time every time Um, I did actually really like the Adam Lambert rendition. I'm surprised. I was worried you wouldn't. But I know Adam really, really tried. Like, I know he researched. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he actually reached out to several of the people who have played Eddie. Um, Not just Meatloaf, but some of the other Broadway people. 
See, that's, yeah, that's cool. See, I have nothing against Adam Lambert as a person. Mm-hmm. His scene where he pops in and out as Eddie is the first and only scene from the remake that I've watched at all. And well, that's good. when I was reading the comments, because I wanted to see what other people were saying about it, literally all the comments said, Adam Lambert was the only good part about this movie. Adam Lambert is the <laughs> redeeming quality. If they didn't have Adam Lambert, the whole thing would have been shit. Adam Lambert's the best part. This is the only part you need to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, good. I picked the right one. <laughs> no. But yes, I did like, I did like what he did to it. I think that it was very Adam Lambert. He definitely took it and made it mesh with his own style, which I appreciate. I think he has amazing vocals. I think his range is incredible. He didn't win that American Idol season, did he? No, he came in second, right? I do believe he came in second. Wasn't Chris Allen the one who won that season? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, they were both good. I liked them both. I think they both did really good. Yeah, that was one of the very few episodes that I watched. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I've never actually watched American Idol ever. But it, the finalists always become such a big deal that everybody hears about it. And so I remember, like, I remember liking both of their styles. Chris was more of a old school kind of acoustic-y, like, nice guy. And then Adam Lambert was, like, the edgy younger guy with the eyeliner. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, his voice is amazing in the remake, and he looks great, but I would have enjoyed the song just as much if it was just a cover on his solo album, honestly. I'm not going to lie. I completely agree. And, you know, again, you bring up Adam. I am not personally a true Adam fan. Um, like, I don't really own any of his albums. I don't really stream his music. But I do love him because he's a part of is he part of Queen or Journey? I forget. He did both for a little bit. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was, is it, was it both? I'm pretty, so he did both for a little bit. And then if I'm not mistaken, um, he left the Journey because um, they picked up that really adorable Filipino singer that they found mm -hmm. off of YouTube and he's with Queen now. And to be able to belt out notes like that, like he's so talented, so talented. And I just, I, I appreciate so much how he gave his all for this song. And you're right, like, it didn't get, the whole movie itself didn't get great reviews, but his part alone was enough for me to be like, wow. And 100% agree. If he had just, like, covered this and put it on an album like Weezer did or some of the other bands that do that, I would have bought it because he did amazing. I agree. I really liked his scene. I'm glad that's the one I... <laughs> Wanted, I, I ended up checking out because I liked it. I like what, the, I mean, they did some really interesting things. It's it's a little, everything looks darker. The Transylvanians are very different. It's an interesting spin on, on the original source material. So, mm -hmm. so I can appreciate that for sure. Um, and then I actually, I did watch uh, some footage of Meatloaf performing Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul on tour. And I, like, I love the energy of his band. Every musician on that stage, and there are quite a few, they look like they're having the time of their lives playing with Meatloaf. Oh, absolutely. 
So um, I saw a clip of it when I was doing my research and um, I just came across like I literally just typed in everything because I wanted to make sure that I was true. And I believe I saw the same clip as you. I'll post it on the blog. It's phenomenal. And the energy is what's just it, like you can't help but smile and be excited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what that song does for me. So that's part of the reason why I chose it. And aside from Adam Lambert doing his rendition for the remake of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Let's Do the Time Warp Again, there are a few of the covers that I found, including London Theatre Orchestra and Cast, who covered this for their 2015 album, The Musical Sound of. Matamala covered this on their 2000 album, Extra Ball. Kugler released an album in 2017 consisting of nothing but Rocky Horror soundtrack covers, including this one. And for the Rocky Horror Punk Rock Show, the Phenomenauts covered Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul. So those are just some of the ones I found. Of course, same as before, when you type in Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul into your music streaming service, you're going to see quite a few pop up because lots of different casts recorded their albums and lots of people have covered it so those are some of the ones I found that I liked let me know if I missed any that you liked let me know if there's any that you like that I should know about I would love to hear all the covers (laughs) so by now Eddie's dead sorry Eddie (laughs) bye I love how you say it just so nonchalant Well, I wasn't as nice as Frank, I guess, because Frank emerges from the freezer and everyone's shocked and he drops the pickaxe and he just kind of smiles and he says, wonder from the vault. And he just kind of blows it off. And yeah. So then he does a reprise to I Can Make You a Man, which is another honorable mention. Mm -hmm. And then he and Rocky go to their wedding bed. And the wedding march plays. So cute. Yeah, it is kind of adorable, actually. <laughs> it's like, it, it's so funny. And actually, I love when um, Frank comes out of the freezer and the way he clutches his gloves and his hands together. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, don't be mad at me. It was a mercy killing. And then he kind of like throws his hands towards um, Colum- no, not Columbia, Magenta, right? And mm-hmm. like, oh, get these off of me. And it's just, it's an adorable, adorable scene right after, even though, you're not supposed to be like, I don't know, in love with someone who just murders someone. <laughs> it's so hard not to be like, oh my God, you're just the most adorable human being ever. And you're not a human. <laughs> yes, like that's that's part of the charm of Frank. That's part of the reason why people love Frank is because his little mannerisms are so adorable and fun to watch and you just you want to see what he's gonna do next and he's such a queenie (laughs) yes he's so cute I mean he just like literally like takes his hands like "Ah, take it get it off of me (laughs) with his gloves it's it's so cute (laughs) yeah yeah I love Frank adorable he is adorable so at this point Brad and Janet are sent to their separate rooms. During the whole Rocky reveal, Janet at first didn't really care for Rocky Mm -hmm. because she doesn't like men with too many muscles. I didn't make him for you. (laughs) (laughs) But 
she eventually, like, toward the end of that third or fourth song, she decided she was a muscle fan, and she was actually, she was kind of looking at Rocky in ways that Brad didn't like. Yeah, she, like, you see her kind of, like, bopping along, like, she's weirdly dancing just on the songs, and then you hear her belt out this falsetto, I'm a muscle fan, and Brad looks at her like, what the hell, Janet? (laughs) <laughs> and she just kind of stopped singing, but it's just so cute because she, you see her kind of coming out of her shell, and um, you absolutely see that in these next couple scenes because, like Misa said, they're kind of sent to their room after um, the marriage song because you know the curtain closes and Frank jumps up into Rocky's arms, and we only assume what happens. <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Brad and Janet are sent to their separate rooms for the night, and um, someone enters her room. She's like, "Who's there?" And it's Brad's voice, and he comes into what looks like one of those old, like kind of canopy bed. Exactly, and it's got like that super fancy, like sheer uh, curtain all around it, right? Yeah, like I remember wanting one of those so bad. Oh my god, me too. I've always wanted a canopy bed because um because she had one in It Takes Two. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. I still want one. Yes. And like those are like like rich people dreams, right? Like isn't that something that we all want? Because rich people have those and you have to dust them, you know, and take care of them and stuff like that. Anyways, so you see her like with all the sheerness around her and um, the person we assume is Brad climbs into bed with her and they start kind of kissing and fondling. And then as they're kissing, she's kind of like giggling and uh, she realizes that it is not Brad, but it is Frank. And she's like, oh my God, I've never and like tries to push him off. But you know, temptation takes over. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you want him to see him this? And uh, the scene is just, it's so, so um, well done. I mean, you don't ever see anything. Like all you see are their silhouettes and you hear their voices, but it is perfectly executed and you can feel the the, the tension, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole time, it's you're not even really seeing them. You're seeing their shadows behind that scrim. Yeah. But even so, like their voices and even their shadows are so expressive. Yes. Yeah. It's a really well acted scene for considering like we don't see very much at all. Absolutely. And so, you know, he starts kissing. She's like, well, I've, I've never. And then, you know, she's like, you promise you won't tell Brad? And so we assume what happens between them. Mm-hmm. And um, we see that Riff Raff and Magenta were watching this whole scene in the lab as they're cleaning up from everything. And we watch them go and do their elbow sex. <laughs> yes, and they, they go fuck with Rocky. Exactly. Because, you know... I feel like there's a little bit of animosity towards Rocky from them because, like you said, like you, there's almost like a love-hate relationship with Frank, and it's almost like they're jealous, right, of Rocky and the attention he's getting. You know, like he gets this whole like really special room that's lined with like all these like 
silk fabrics and everything. Um, and here they are just like the measly help, right? I think a lot of it might have to do with, because obviously we know that there was something going on between Frank and Columbia. So who's to say that like maybe Frank wasn't at some point involved with Magenta or Riff Raff and he blew them off at some point or mm-hmm. even further so like we know that Frank doesn't treat Riff Raff and Magenta very well. We know that he bosses them around, he belittles them, he shoves them aside, and he doesn't really treat them like they're equals, like like they're dignified when in actuality they all came from the same planet. Exactly. So it's it, Frank just kind of acts very superior to them and he's maybe doubting their alliance. Well said. So they take out that animosity by um, Riff Raff takes like a candelabra that has lit candles on it and kind of shoves it towards Rocky. Rocky, of course, breaks away from his chains because what newlywed isn't chained to their bed mm-hmm. <laughs> and runs out. And as they do this, we see then that we are shown Brad's room and Janet enters and you know they start kissing of course same thing and he kind of strokes the hair and then realizes this is not Janet it's Frank and Brad reacts a little bit more like no 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 like right away and Janet was a little bit more slutty uh but she's a slut so (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so we hear, you know, Brad starts yelling for Janet's name and Frank's like, do you want her to see you like this? And he like pulls his legs up and then you see him kiss down his chest and everything. And again, it's the same idea. And even though they're shadow acting, which I'm going to use that term now, Misa, mm-hmm. it's, it's phenomenal. And you can, you can feel like how Brad wants something so bad and can't quite give into it yet and finally he's just like you promise you won't tell and you know it happens (laughs) and then of course riffraff pages him the master as they're getting a little bit uh more intimate and uh he says coming so's bread (laughs) And I love the way that you see him, like, kind of pulsating. It's such a cute scene. Like, his back arches because it feels so good. Yes, yes. So, uh, we leave them. And then, of course, Janet and her dramatic ass is like, what's happening? Where is everyone? Where's Brad? And, like, throwing herself into railings and walls and whatnot, you know, like people do when they're dramatic. And Mm -hmm. she just magically happens to know which switch is the cameras, which none of them are labeled. So I really don't. That's always something, too, that I was like, how did she know that was that one? Like, how did she know that lever wasn't the one that, like, you know the secret lever door that like drops you down into the crocodile layer that everyone has in their lab. So she switches that on and she sees Brad smoking a cigarette, sitting on the edge of the bed while Frank is like laid out on the bed. And she's, you know, Brad, how could you? When she literally just did the she same thing. She literally just did the same thing. <laughs> you fucking <laughs> Right? <laughs> Hypocrite. It's okay for you, but not for him. Right, right. 
so you know she's like devastated brad how could you and then she hears some commotion going on from the tank that we saw earlier in the scene in the lab and she goes over and she sees rocky with like very minimal damage and she's just oh my goodness these people are abusing you right yeah (laughs) and she like wraps his hand with a non like a non-existent wound with of course she has no bandages so she has to tear her skirt Mm -hmm. uh her little what are those called slips Mm -hmm. thank you a slip and as she's doing this she's kind of looking around and she's realizing you know what Brad went ahead and fucked the person I did. I'm going to one-up him (laughs) and sleep with another. Even though they're even. (laughs) Exactly. They were even. They were good, but not in her mind. And we are introduced to the song. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. (laughs) I was feeling done in. Couldn't win. I'd only ever kissed and my favorite thing about this song is how it's interactive because she's singing it as she's like taking care and I'm doing like air quotes here guys because she's not really taking care of anything on Rocky Mm -hmm. and um, Magenta and Columbia are watching from I guess kind of like their quarters in the house they're um, Columbia is painting Magenta's toenails it looks like and Magenta randomly has a blow dryer that she's just blow drying, like, her hair, but her hair looks dry, right? Yeah. (laughs) And then at one point, she, like, blows down her shirt. I don't know. It's really weird. But I love how they're kind of, like, singing with them, and they didn't realize that she had been with Frank, and so they're going back and forth singing the song. Um, And Janet literally says exactly what we assumed about her that she's never done anything um until recently and she's like you know there's no use getting into heavy petting um which I always thought that term was really weird too like who I don't know I just thought like I don't know petting to me is not equated to anything um intimate uh I always imagined it as like over the panties rubbing I don't know to me I think of a dog and that's gross so well because she needs to rhyme (laughs) I know it needs to rhyme silly I'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) that's what as soon as like that's what I've always thought of it as I thought of it as like when the guy sticks his hand between your pants and your undies and he starts rubbing I definitely definitely agree with you that that's what the term means I just always thought it was a weird term but you're absolutely right. It 100% rhymes here. And I think that's why it works so well. Because, you know, it leads to feet wetting. I've got an ish to scratch. I need assistance. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. I want to be dirty. And she literally calls herself a whore. She's like, I've tasted blood and now I want more. Um, and she talks about needing assistance and she wants to be dirty and, you know, fulfill me. Um, and she refers to Rocky as creature of the night. And as she's singing this, um, another scene that she's like 
laying in the tank, their faces change. And it goes through like all of the characters, which I thought was really interesting. So in my mind, it made me think like maybe Janet was open to everyone. It made me wonder if because she was sleeping with Rocky, she was technically sleeping with everyone because they've all slept with each other. Ooh, good point. And Rocky had only slept with Frank up until that point, correct? Right. And so Frank, again, goes back to, like, who all was he fucking in the house? Because technically mm. it was everyone. Yeah, so, like, six separation. What is that? The sixth degree of separation? Degree of separation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Six degrees so. of sexualation. That <laughs> reminds me of that house. Ew! A herpes house. Thank God I never caught anything. Creature of the night. Creature of the night. Creature of the night. So yeah, so this song ends, and of course, oh my gosh, the way this song ends though, after the creature of the night, like Frank comes up and he's so pissed and he has on the most amazing leather jacket for this thing and he's like whipping at Riff Raff which by the way he did accidentally in the filming of this he was hitting the floor with the whip and he did accidentally hit Richard um with the whip during one of these scenes yeah and Richard was like I didn't complain because I'm a method actor exactly (laughs) thank you method acting um he is like just so angry that anyone would let his baby out and then um brad is of course with him because you know that's his man now and man woman person i don't know what his uh pronouns are so (laughs) yeah whatever he goes by exactly whatever he goes by and it just so happens that we have a visitor at the house um and before i get into that though i do want to cover i did find a couple of covers of this song before I move too far if it's okay Susan was not the first person to play Janet so there are several other people who did sing the song and that includes the originator Julie Covington who was the first live performance um, Belinda Sinclair and Raynard Borton for Broadway Abigail Haynes, Maureen Elkin um, and then Susan And that was all within just a couple of years. Then we have um, Jenny Anderson, Gina Bellman, um, a band called Croatan. And on the uh, punk version, it's a band called Carolyn No, which I haven't heard of them. um, But I know Misa will, of course, hopefully find something that we can get up on the blog for them. Um, I know you have the album. Do you like that version, Misa? It's okay. Okay. Um, and then also the Glee cast covered it. And then um, if you've watched any of the um, specials or anything that they've shown on TV, there's been lots of covers there as well. Um, in the TV, uh, Let's Do the Time Warp Again, it was done by Victoria Justice, um, which... I I don't know. It was weird to see her from this because Taryn is like currently rewatching all of the uh, Victorious show that she was in. So it's kind of weird to imagine her like grown up. But um, she sang this song with um, Christina Milan 
and I'm gonna I think I'm saying her name wrong and the Annalie Ashford person that you mentioned um so yeah there's been lots of other covers of this song and I couldn't really find a whole lot of inspiration or fun facts um I know this wasn't one of your songs but I didn't know if you had any tidbits or anything you wanted to throw out about it one was one of my harder songs to find any like true facts or like real information there's one fun fact that i managed to find so when janet enters the lab right before she finds rocky and she's asking herself like oh if only we hadn't made this journey if only the car hadn't broken down if only we were amongst friends or sane persons it turns out that originally those lines were supposed to be spliced in between a song that Brad sings called Once in a While. And Once in a While does show up on the soundtrack, but it was cut from the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is unfortunate because Brad doesn't get a solo song. You're right. Yeah, and it, and I I love Brad. I I think he's I think he's hilarious. And so of course, Once in a While is going to be one of our honorable mentions. I love this song, and I, I really love the various versions that I've heard of it. I think it's sweet. Uh, I wish they'd kept it in, but the, it was going to be weird, and Barry Boswick even said that it you know the song comes in after him and Frank have fucked, and after you see him smoking the cigarette with Frank in the bed. And he's like, why is anyone going to feel bad for me singing this song when I just like fucked around on Janet? So it, there were a few reasons why they went ahead and didn't use it, but Uh I still like that song and I'm going to put it on the playlist and on the blog. So you guys can hear it if you haven't, but it's a, it's a good tune. And I, you know, I think um, it would have shifted the tone just a bit and it would have made things a little awkward. So I guess they went the right route, but it's still a good song. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. The only thing um, that I was able to find was that I know um, Susan was a little nervous about singing this song because even in um, Damn It Janet, even though that's a duet, she doesn't have as many words. And she said this one was a little bit out of her comfort zone as far as the falsetto. Um and that was something that I saw in like an interview that she did. So, um, and I can send that to you so you can put that up on the blog too. Cool. Yeah. And that's that's another thing is like her voice is so different. Like her singing voice is so different from how I'm used to hearing Susan Sarandon talk like now, you know? Oh, yeah. Totally. So it always kind of surprises me again to listen to her sing so high. And it's like, wow, Susan. I Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like. I didn't even resonate that they were the same people like when I saw movies with her because I mean I know her as like a redhead or like a like a reddish brunette Mm -hmm. and she's not that way in Rocky right yeah like when I think of Susan Sarandon the very first thing I think of is stepmom yeah exactly and when I saw I was like wait what the hell (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man. I was like, like it literally took me a while. I was like, Dad, that is not the same person. He was like, Yeah, and I was like, No, no way. <laughs> so, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sure is the same person. And um, yeah, it took me, it took me years to actually realize. So, 
anyways, um, so, so uh, just a couple of great covers. This is one of the more, I guess, obscure songs. Um, and I do love this song just because it is kind of like Janet's sexual awakening song. And I love that she's like hoeing it out and she's about it, you know? <laughs> so. Yes. And that's, this is another scene where it's like Rocky is so adorably dumb. <laughs> Yes, the way he touches her and you see his fingers, like yeah, like and honestly, like part of the one of the things I did was like every time I rewatched this movie to research it, I I would try to focus on only one character each time. And so one time I watched and I only paid attention to Rocky, and his little mannerisms are so cute, and he's he just seems so timid, but he's so sweet and just dorky. <laughs> Yes. And so he, yes. he's also kind of discovering things along with Janet because this is the first female he's going to be with. Right. But I feel it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. You know what I mean? Like she's only been with Frank for what, like five minutes? Yeah. And then she's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm going to do all these things to you. And it's kind of like, what the hell, Janet? <laughs> what have you been doing on the side? So... <laughs> Yeah, this song, this song, uh, you know, raises a few questions, but it goes into one of the most hilarious scenes in the movie, in my opinion. So, like I said, um, obviously Frank is pissed that his creation has escaped and he doesn't know how it ha has happened. And that's when we see um, Riff Raff say we have a visitor and Brad, you know, takes his glasses off and, hey, Scotty, Dr. Everett's and they're like how do you know this person how do you know he's here and um frank is like oh so i see it wasn't just you know a chance that you happened to appear that your tire was flat and your car broke down um you came here on purpose and brad this is when like i kind of feel like he's showing that he even though things we don't really know if there's going to be a relationship we're assuming there's not but you see that he kind of has feelings for Frank because of the way he responds at least in my opinion he's kind of like taken aback like no like like no I wouldn't come here you know I, I didn't do anything he's very like I don't know how to explain it do you do you get what I mean uh from my perspective I never got the feeling that Brad was responding because he had feelings for Frank okay but uh this goes into my theory that I want to talk about later okay um, just the way he um, responded to him, in my opinion, he like becomes very not as aggressive. Um, not that he was aggressive. I don't know how to explain it, but it's just the way that I take that scene. It's very like, why would I do that to you? Like, I wouldn't bring someone here. Like, I promise. Like, of course, I'm being honest with you. Um, I don't know. He, it, his whole tone changes, even his mannerisms, his body language changes. And that's something that I picked up on in those years that I've watched it. So anyways, um, Dr. Scott inserts the building. And then Frank turns on like the most amazing magnet ever that pulls him into the lab. And I know this is probably a fun fact that Misa found also, but they actually forgot to design an entrance for Dr. Scott. And so this scene is where Dr. Scott um, literally crashes through the wall. And that's because they ran out of time to build him 
like a door or an entrance for this scene. So they had to go with it. And as the scene, they all say each other's names because they hear a gasp and, you know, it's Janet, Dr. Scott, Janet, Brad, Rocky. And it goes on and on and it just cracks me up. And they're like zoomed in on their faces and it's just, it's hilarious to me. It reminds me of one of the, um, oh, I'm forgetting their names. What are those like older... They were like the two comedians. Abbott and Costello? Um, yes, them. And then there was another one, but mostly people know about Abbott and Costello. And just the way that they acted with their like one-liners, like back and forth. It's just, it's perfect. And it's so cute. So that leads us there. And from there, we uh, go to dinner. <laughs> this is the most bizarre dinner scene. Like, <laughs> You thought the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family was weird? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all at dinner, and Frank is sitting at the head of the table, and we have Brad and Janet, and of course, uh, formal wear is to be optional. So Janet is still in her underwear, and Brad is in his blue robe, and we have Dr. Scott at the other end of the table with Columbia and Rocky sitting across from Brad and Janet. Mm-hmm. And the dinner table is set up really weird. There's all these random objects around and like setting up as if they are place settings, but they're not really items for place settings like bedpans and shit. Yes, specimen <laughs> jars. And um, Magenta and Riff Ruff enter with a big chunk of meat on a plate. <laughs> so at this point, like Frank sings happy birthday to Rocky because today is technically his the day of his birth. Mm-hmm. and Frank starts cutting up the meat and Magenta is pouring wine and then she serves these little slabs of it. It just looks like a big slice of turkey or it looks like a big slice of chicken that she slaps on everybody's plate. And she literally slaps it. Like, Misa's not exaggerating. It's not like, yeah. the, oh, here it is. She, like, throws it, chunks it on there, barely makes it on one of the plates. Yeah, and she it's just it's really she's not she's not the best waitress, y'all. She's <laughs> she's not very she would not get good tips. No, not at all. <laughs> the reason why Dr. Scott is here is because he's here to find Eddie. And what we found out before dinner was that Eddie is actually Dr. Scott's nephew. Mm-hmm. And this is, this comes as a shock to Frank, who did not know that there was a relation. And again, Frank and Eddie were lovers. So I think Frank might be feeling a little guilty now. But so at dinner, Dr. Scott brings up Eddie and he's like, we came here to discuss Eddie. And Frank says, yes, a rather tenderish subject. Another slice, anyone? (laughs) And Brad looks at his meat. Janet, Dr. Scott looks at his meat. Columbia gets up away from the table and she excuses herself and she exits the room and she just starts screaming. Mm. And Rocky just continues to eat because he doesn't care. (laughs) That or do you think he understood? I don't know because even in the audience participation, like when Frank says, another slice anyone, we shout, Brad gets it, Janet gets it, Dr. Scott gets it, Columbia gets it, Rocky gets it, or he doesn't give a shit. (laughs) <laughs> it's literally what we say. So we don't know. I, I always just kind of thought, like, 
he really didn't care. I think he was just hungry because I'm I'm not sure if he's been fed at this point. That's true. Yeah, he's just been fucking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No food. And I mean, we all know how that's like. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> and if you don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh gosh! If you don't know, go find out. Go, yeah. go, uh, go let loose. Don't let someone touch a touch you. Yeah, with a mask, guys. Be with a mask, guys, and gloves. Yeah, be responsible. Please do. Please wear a fucking mask. I can't believe I have to say it again. Please wear a mask every day. Every day, say it. <laughs> so at dinner. They end up singing one of our honorable mentions, which is Eddie. And this is basically Dr. Scott talking about how Eddie grew up and Eddie was a punk and Eddie was in and out of jail. Eddie was mixed up, but, you know, he still wanted to help him because Eddie apparently sent Dr. Scott a note saying that he needed help or he might die and they must not carry out their evil scheme. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty ominous. And Frank just kind of looks around like he doesn't want to seem suspicious, but you know something's up. Totally. (laughs) And so once the song is over, Frank calmly gets up from the table and he pulls the tablecloth off of this giant dinner table. And just underneath the tablecloth is Eddie's corpse. And everybody screams. And this is what kind of irks me about this scene because... One of the fun facts about the filming of this is that there were only so many people who knew that the corpse was going to be under the tablecloth. Right. And so a lot of the trivia says, like, so the, all the actors' reactions are genuine. But we don't actually see them because they zoom in on the corpse. Yeah. Always bothered me. I agree with you. The only person you see is Rocky, who, Rocky and Janet, and Janet runs to Rocky. No, but I mean, I mean the actual shot God where damn. the tablecloth comes off, and like instead of it still being a wide shot where you can see everyone seeing it, the camera zooms in on Eddie, and you just hear Janet scream. You're absolutely right. So I was like, "What's the point of getting a genuine reaction if we couldn't see their faces?" Yeah, that wasn't well thought out. I always bothered. I wanted, I wanted to see their real reactions because apparently the only ones who knew were Frank. And Meatloaf, because he had to model for it. And I believe the director, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're absolutely correct. They didn't tell anybody else except for those three. So I just thought that was kind of a, it was a good idea, but it was kind of, it was sloppy camera work, in my opinion. I think you're absolutely right. But from here, yes, you're right. Janet does run terrified and she runs into Rocky's arms and he likes it. Like he smiles and he he wraps his arms around her. He loves her. He's so cute. And so then Frank, Frank is upset. He's like, oh, Rocky, how could you? And he yanks Rocky from her grip. And then he slaps Janet hard <laughs> across the face. He sure does. And this is, this goes into another one of our honorable mentions, which is Planet Schmanet Janet, where Frank chases Janet through the house and they end up in the lab and he medusas Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott, which is basically the he says it's the transducer will seduce you. And so he pulls the lever on the Medusa <laughs> and it turns them into stone, much like the what is it, the Greek legend about Medusa? And if you looked at her, you turned to stone. If you looked at her and you turned to stone, yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's what Frank does. Frank turns them all into stone 
statues. Yep, he's done with them. And of course, when he does this, all of their clothes like magically disappear and everyone is naked. And the statues, you can see like their pubes and everything, which was really great. Yes, they did not spare any details. None. It's amazing. And so at this point, Columbia has been watching everything because she ran into the lab as well. And she's like, I can't stand any more of this. First, you spurn me for Eddie, and then you throw him out like an old overcoat for Rocky. You chew people up, and then you spit them out again. I loved you. Do you hear me? I loved you. And yeah, what did it get me? I'll tell you, a big nothing. And then she says that all he does is take, 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 and drain others of their love and emotion, and that she has had enough. And she says that Frank has to choose between her and Rocky, so named because of the rocks in his head. And who does he choose? He chooses Rocky, so he he turns to Magenta, and she Medusa's Columbia. And so Columbia becomes a naked statue as well. Mm-hmm. And then Frank. Frank, I think he's looking at Magenta and Riff Raff, but then I also think this was kind of like a... I thought this was kind of kind of an aside as well. At least it would be on stage, because he basically looks into the camera like he's looking at you, and he says, it's not easy having a good time. Even smiling makes my face ache. I absolutely agree with you because then when he talks about all my children, I do kind of feel like he was also talking about Riff Raff and them because remember Riff Raff let Rocky out. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's how I took it from this scene. That's what I, let's see, we're already breaking this movie apart into like all these different perspectives and some people just see it as a movie. I love that. (laughs) Exactly. It's life changing. (laughs) There's lots of things to read into, guys, and you can come up with whatever interpretation you want. That's the beauty of Rocky Horror. Amen. Frank looks up, and on the balcony, Rocky is pretending to be frozen, I guess, because he doesn't want to be noticed. (laughs) Which is adorable. (laughs) So adorable. And then Frank signals for Rocky to be Medusa, too. And if you're in the audience participation... This is the part where you say, what a great party. Everyone's stoned. And this is when Frank, yeah, this is when Frank starts to just kind of feel bad for himself. And he realizes like the, maybe the experiment wasn't a good idea. And, and then that's when Magenta starts yelling at him. And she wants to know when they're going to go back to their home planet. Mm-hmm. Because by now we know that they are not earthlings, guys. We know that they're aliens. And she is not crazy about Earth. Not at all. She kind of wants to go back. Yeah. And and a big reason why she wants to go back is, I think, because Frank has steered away from what they originally intended to do on Earth. I think that they wanted to plan some kind of world domination. I think they kind of wanted to take over the humans. And Frank just kind of decided, like, no, I want to be here and have fun and fuck everybody. Exactly. <laughs> He took over the whole mission. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also ties into why Riff Raff and Magenta resent him so much. And I think that's why, another reason why, like, yeah, we see them having fun in some of these moments. We see them playing off of Frank and they enable Frank. At this point, Magenta's just fed up and she wants to go back to Transylvania. And this is when Frank is like, you know, you and your brother Riff Raff, zoink, like their brother and sister, by the way. Yes. (laughs) This is the first time that it's referred to that they're actually siblings. And we've seen him, like, nibble on her neck. Yeah, you do not get that 
vibe at all. Like what I remember when they, when I first realized that that line was said, because it wasn't, again, I saw this movie early, but a lot of these things went over my head. And when that line, I was like, what? No, mouth drop. They do some different shit. Right. And that's part of, that's part of the fun of this movie is like, you see Riff Raff and Magenta throughout the film, they're likely always together in scenes and they play off of each other. They have a bond and you can't quite put your finger on it, but considering what's happening in the house and everyone's switching around, you kind of get the feeling that they're a couple. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or at least that they've been together. Yes, exactly. Like they have a romantic history. And I mean, I, maybe they do, but it turns out they are brother and sister. Crazy plot twist. Um, show. <laughs> <laughs> this is when uh, Frank is just like, you know, you and your brother have been very good to me. And he basically insinuates that he will reward them for their help when the mood strikes him. And then he can service them and they can service him back. Yep. And this is when Magenta says, I ask for nothing. And this is when he gets really snappy and he says, then you shall receive it in abundance. (laughs) And this is one of my favorite audience participation lines because right after he says that, we're like, hey, Frank, what's your favorite sports drink? Come, we are ready for the floor show. (laughs) It's a really quick moment. but It's funny as fuck. And so Frank leaves the lab in the elevator and Magenta and Riff Raff just watch him leave. And they walk over to the statues. They have elbow sex right on top of Dr. Scott. How dare they? Have they no respect? The vulgarity. (laughs) And then they just kind of give each other a look. And then they take off up the ramp and out of the lab. Mm -hmm. And then we see our dear and wonderful narrator who talks a little bit. And tells us, you know, more about that night and how they've both tasted forbidden fruit. Frank's come. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do learn a little bit about uh, that omniscient narrator, like I said, like what exactly was Frank's crazed diabolical plan. Um, you know, he asked more about kind of like what would have happened, um, what had gone on before. It was clear that this was meant to be like no picnic. And this is when we go into, I mean, probably what I would say is the climax of the movie. Like it's building towards this scene. And that is the amazing floor show. The majority of our prime characters have been turned into statues. We have Columbia, Rocky, Janet and Brad, they've all been turned into basically sculptures of themselves, life-size and naked. And between scenes, Frank has taken it upon himself to dress them up nice for the floor show. And he does it so well. I'm thoroughly impressed by his ability to put fishnets on Dr. Scott when Dr. Scott was wearing a blanket. Yes. Unless he was already wearing those stockings before. Thoughts I've had in my mind. 
I'm telling you, we're, we're going to do a conspiracy theory on movie plots and timelines. You know what? That's going to be cool. Like, I think we should have a couple episodes about that. Like, we could do Pixar conspiracy theories. Yes. We could do, like, like, you know what I mean? That How fun would that be? I, I actually love that idea because I know there's a giant theory about the Pixar movies being connected with this big web. Yes. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, guys, what are your movie conspiracy theories? What do you want us to discuss? Send them to us. Yes, yes. As long as it's not uh, that horrible, horrible movie you guys sent a while ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. We're good on that one. Anything else is fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, I love conspiracies and I love movies. So I definitely want to talk movie conspiracies. Yeah, that's fun. I'm about it. By now, so the statues are all glammed up and they're wearing corsets and fishnets and heels. And Frank gives each of them a feather boa and they all look great. They look like they are ready to perform and they are just forever in their tableau. (laughs) And so as Frank puts the finishing touches on them and he himself is getting ready, he's got like face cream all over him and his hair is up and he he looks like he's in the process of getting ready. Yes. He reminds (laughs) me of like, kind of like a burlesque, like mom almost, like with the curlers, like what you would see, like what you would imagine, like a burlesque mom you know, walking around and before she's fully dressed with her makeup and everything. Yes. He also gives me Joan Crawford vibes. 100%. (laughs) So as Frank is putting the finishing touches on his works of art, so to speak, we hear the song cue up, Rose Tint My World. So we start off with Columbia. She comes to life as soon as he she gets de-medusa'd. It was great when it all began. I was a regular Frankie fan. But it was over when he had... And she starts dancing on stage. And her verse is talking about how it was great when it all began. But eventually Frank decided to make a man for himself this is when things started to take a turn for the worse and so in the song she says now the only thing that gives me hope is my love for a certain dope i always thought she was referring to eddie but according to some interpretations that i found online some people think she's referring to frank what was your opinion Ooh, very good i honestly thought she was referring to eddie Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, The only thing that made me think maybe not was that he was dead. And so if he's dead, how can she have any hope left? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it kind of, it would make sense that it's about Frank because we've seen throughout the movie that she does have this unconditional love for him. And she would not be able to get as upset with him as she does if she didn't love and care about Frank. And so a part of me thinks that, like, maybe she does mean him because she still has hope that he can change or that she can change him. And, I mean, by now we kind of know Frank and we know he's kind of set in his ways. But 
it's it's sweet and it's it's naive nonetheless uh, regardless of who she's referring to but i still stand that she's talking about eddie here well i it makes sense to me that it is eddie like i hear the other theory and i get it um but i mean she talks about like i was a regular frankie fan um at the beginning and i just feel like you know, Eddie had that kind of dopiness about him. And I mean, I mean, Frank took half of his brain and she still loved him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like it goes hand in hand. So I agree with you. I think it, plus it, it just, it, like you said, it's more sappy to me and more cutesy if she's singing it about Eddie. Yeah, I agree. So I think it, it, it really can, there is no wrong answer. I don't think, I think that whatever your perspective uh-huh. is, is exactly who she's referring to. Maybe both. Who knows? It very well could be. But I just I'm a I'm a Columbia Eddie shipper all the way. I <laughs> again I love that brief scene that they had together. After Columbia's verse, she takes a pose and then Rocky gets demedusad. Rocky's verse is kind of funny because when he starts, like when you're in the audience participation and he says, I'm just seven hours old, we're like, and fuck twice. (laughs) And so Rocky's verse is basically talking about how he is hungry for lust. And because that's what he was born and bred to serve, that's really all that he responds to. Like he's found that in, in the seven hours that he's been alive, all he really wants to do is fuck. So Frank's creation kind of backfired. It's very monkey's paw. Ooh, yeah. Well, right. Because he's he's like, I want someone who can release my sexual tension. Well, there's a clause. He'll also do that for other people. Uh (laughs) And so one of Rocky's lyrics is straight up. Now, the only thing I've come to trust is an orgasmic rush of lust. Uh And he does these awesome little hip thrusts <laughs> and then he takes his pose <laughs> and then Brad gets demedusa this is my favorite one yes right favorite hands down favorite Barry really shows off his skill in this verse. It's the shaking of the legs that does it for me. Oh my God, yes. And it's so long. And he stretches it right up parallel to his spine. Yes. Yes. Barry. You're phenomenal. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And so Brad's verse, he is kind of... Brad is still feeling very overwhelmed by these new sexual desires and this new sexual awakening that he has, that Frank has helped him find. And so Brad is dancing and he kind of dances a little clumsily and he seems to have trouble with the boa. And then he ends up on the, on the stage floor. And this is when he does that awesome stretch. (laughs) And he looks he looks great in these fishnet and heels. He has great legs. 
And then he gets up and he just, he talks about how he feels a rush and he likes the feel of the rush and ooh, here it comes again. Mm -hmm. And then he takes his pose. And then finally, Janet gets demedusa And Janet is basically a completely different person. Like, you completely forget who she was an hour and 15 minutes ago because she is not that woman anymore. She has shed her skin. She has shed a few things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she has completely embraced this newfound Janet, this Janet persona. So she talks about how her mind has been expanded. She says, it's a gas that Frankie's landed. His lust is so sincere. And in a way, all of these verses either outright or allude to the fact that they're actually kind of grateful for what Frank has done for them. And specifically, the lyrics that pop up a few times are, Rose tints my world, keeps me safe from my trouble and pain. To me, this song really is about the characters' perspectives and their newfound perspectives after meeting Frank, after loving Frank, being involved with Frank. Like, Columbia fell in love with Frank when she met him, and she did what he told her to do, and she was loyal to him, but it was never enough. Through it all, she still loved Frank because, quote, Rose tipped my world, and she was able to let the bad things slide because she loved him. And then the whole lyric about keeps me safe from my trouble and pain goes along with staying ignorant and turning a blind eye to the real problems because you don't want to deal with them. Right. Another example would be Rocky, whose main purpose in life was to be a sex toy. So naturally, it's all that he knows, and it's all that drives him. So as long as he can fuck around without hurting anyone, he's, quote, safe from his trouble and pain. And Brad still doesn't quite understand what's happened to him. He's still learning to grasp it. You know, when he's dancing, he almost looks like he's not even in complete control of his body. He almost looks possessed, like it's controlling him. But even though he's confused and a little scared, like he's also... He's open. Yeah, exactly. He actually kind of likes it and he can't help but give into it. Right. It's kind of like years of having to... um live a certain way because you know you're raised in a certain household with certain expectations and then it's like you finally get a chance to be yourself that you don't even realize or know who you truly are because you haven't experienced anything exactly exactly it's one of those um kind of like identity by environment type things and so you kind of define yourself by what you know and what was around you but you never really experienced much more than that Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like it's exactly. funny that you that you say that about growing up in certain households because I immediately thought of religion. Yes, and religious households and how they they have to abide by certain rules or or else. Yeah, I think that's a really great explanation, and that that's got to be exactly how Brad is feeling. And of course, we know that this movie holds a very special place in the LGBTQ plus community, and I think that this. Not saying that Brad is a homosexual. I I think Brad is also open to anything. But I think that this kind of speaks to those who maybe struggled with identifying themselves as 
gay or bi or lesbian or those who just had trouble identifying themselves as anything outside of what they thought they were for a long time. Um, so the fear and the reluctance, but also like the the excitement as well, I think is really relatable when it comes to Brad because I think everyone one way or another has gone through that where we were scared of something until we eased into it and then it became part of us. That's so deep. Um, And then, of course, we have Janet, who she's the most awakened, I would say. She feels better about herself now. She sings about how these whole new worlds have opened up for her because now she feels confident. And, And it's all thanks to Frank, who she actually seems to be singing very warmly about. So it's she's really kind of become grateful that she met him. Absolutely. He like peeled away like insecurities and I mean uh when you first see her she's very kind of like timid and you know she clutches her hands over like her chest and keeps her body very close to her and it's like you said a completely different Janet in the song. Yes. Yes. And growing up I loved this song because I loved the lyrics and I I loved that beginning guitar and it it was just a fun song and it's I think it's also my love for the stage and stage productions. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but now as I've gotten older and I've um I've collected more pop culture knowledge uh rewatching this movie in 2020 the song reminds me a lot of a quote from Bojack, which I know it gets quoted a lot. I know everybody posts it on Reddit like once a week, and <laughs> it it pops up on Instagram like 20 times a day. But I happen to love this quote, and I think it it encapsulates a flaw that a lot of us possess, and it also kind of explains exactly the overall meaning of this song. And it's a quote by a character that Lisa Kudrow voiced, and she was an owl that dated Bojack. And right around the time that they broke up, she looked at him and she said, when you look at someone with rose-colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. Oh. Wow. And so that kind of reminds me of how everyone is trying to see their world now because they know that Frank has hurt them. So while it's not very healthy to ignore someone's bad traits entirely for the sake of maintaining your image of them, I can understand the mindset. And I think that's why this song is really relatable. In ways, I'm still naive and I want everyone to be happy. And so after watching a movie where Frank manipulates and coerces and seduces these characters, they still find reasons to sing and dance and appreciate what he has done for them, even though they may be negatively affected. I would compare it to those cliches where everything happens for a reason, or you have to go through X to get to Z, and you take the good in with the bad and the bad in with the good, if it changes you for the better. And so by now, with this song, these characters are fully aware of how Frank has treated them, but they manage to find the good in what they found rather than focus on their pain. And so when I hear the phrase, rose tint my world, keep me safe from my trouble and pain, it just makes me picture them wearing rose-colored glasses and they're going to see what they want to see. Absolutely. 
it's kind of like uh, the blinders on horses. Like you can't really see everything, but you can see what you like truly put your attention towards. And this song has always been very special to me because I agree. It's kind of another thing that makes me think of it's like 1984, like ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Um, but I do like that you pointed out that they were aware of the way he was like mistreating them or doing things, but they chose to look at the, the good parts and to remember the good parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is a universal mindset. Definitely. So some fun facts about the production of the floor show. Well, there are three songs that play in the floor show. And if you go to Spotify, Rose Tint My World is also the same track as the fanfare and Don't Dream It, Be It, and actually Wild and Untamed Thing. But we're counting them as four separate songs. (laughs) Yes. Um, But all four of those do take place on stage at the floor show performed by the four characters and then eventually joined by Frank. So I do have some notes about the floor show and the filming. We see that all the characters are wearing corsets. And so this is actually what they jump into the pool with. And so costume design had to have two corsets for everyone so that the cast could always be wearing one and then the other one would be hanging so that it would dry between shoots. Yes. So Peter Henwood, who's the actor who played Rocky, he was a model at the time, and he really couldn't sing or really act, which that's what all the notes on this movie say, but I think he did a good job for what Rocky was. I agree. He played the part like like a, a newborn, like a, a new coming to life toddler like I mean he kind of even toddled around you know like he was learning how to walk and learning how to function right Mm-hmm. I feel like that was very much a part of Rocky yeah I thought so too I didn't think that there was a, like a wrong or bad way to play Rocky because Rocky is literally like a curious newborn mm-hmm so it was it was interesting to me that in all the backstage and production notes and stuff that I would find, everyone was like, yeah, Peter Hinwood couldn't sing or act. And I was like, you know, you guys weren't really asking him for much. And he was a model. So, like, right. he did what he was told. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think about Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Blue suit. No, Magnum. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's another debate. (laughs) So because Peter Henwood couldn't sing, his voice was dubbed by a man named Trevor White, who does not have very many film credits to his name. But according to IMDb, he toured with the Kinks right after filming Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. This is an interesting note, and I knew I wasn't crazy. Okay, and I'm sorry, guys. I pulled this quote directly from IMDb because I wasn't sure how to reword it. It sounds very specific. So, this movie was originally recorded in mono. When 20th Century Fox finally decided to release it to home video in 1990, the songs in the movie were redubbed using the stereo versions from the soundtrack release. A session singer was used in the studio version for Rocky Horror's vocals. Trevor White redubbed them for this movie. So... Keep that in mind. There was an original singer before there was Trevor White, but it wasn't Peter Henwood. 
Rocky Horror's vocals are different on Rose Tint My World, and other subtle differences are noticeable to fans who have seen the theatrical release repeatedly, especially because the words don't match the mouths of the actors and actresses. And I can confirm, every time I see this movie at River Oaks, Rocky does not sound like Rocky. <laughs> and I and like nobody knows who that voice was. Oh wow. Nobody at all. Like because Trevor White is the one who went down on record, but nobody knows who did the session recordings like in place of it before they got Trevor. Oh wow. So it's like a mystery voice. It's kind of a mystery. And so that's one thing that I've always noticed when I when I go to Rocky when I go to River Oaks Theater and they show Rocky because they legit show the original like theatrical reel of that film and mm-hmm. in both Sword of Damocles and Rose Tint My World, Rocky is definitely not Trevor White and I know that for a fact. That's insane. So, I knew I wasn't crazy. I was so glad when I found that. No, you're. I mean, you're still crazy. But... <laughs> yes, it's crazy, but I I'm don't. not. <laughs> this is my last tidbit about my song because I have a little story to go with it. Barry Boswick says that the floor show is actually his favorite part. Okay, guys, it's story time with Misa. I've actually had the chance to meet Barry Boswick twice in my life now. And both times were pretty freaking incredible. So the first time I got to meet Barry was Comic Palooza 2015. I was working with Clutch City Productions at the time, and I was working at a booth. And that year we brought in Rowdy Roddy Piper, Bobby Heenan, Ron Simmons, The Godfather, and a few others. And I was hired to be the photographer for that booth. And in the row of booths behind me were Barry Bostwick, Patricia Quinn and Little Nell. And so we were setting up our booths and laying out our photos. And it was the first day of con early in the morning. And Barry was walking by all the booths to check them all out and just say hi. And so he came up to our booth. And our booth is covered with like eight by tens of various old school wrestlers. So he was staring at the booth. And I was just staring up at him because I didn't know like, should I leave him alone? Should I say hi? Should I pretend not to notice and then he caught me staring and he looked at me and smiled and he said hi I'm Barry and I shook his hand and I just kind of replied hi I'm starstruck and he was like no you're not and then he went on his way and the convention went on and so I had some downtime a little later and I managed to sneak over to the booths to meet Lil Nell and Patricia Quinn And this was the first time I met them both. And then I walked up to Barry and he saw me walking toward him and he just pointed at me and he screamed, no. And I was like, but I already met you. And then he just, he immediately cracked a smile and he was like, I know, come here. And so he waved me over and I just started talking to him about random stuff. And I told him that I love him on Law and Order SVU and he thought about it for a minute and he was like, oh yeah, I play that smarmy lawyer. (laughs) And I was like, yes, like you're an asshole, but I love you. And what's cool about Barry, which I highly recommend meeting Barry. What's cool about Barry is that he will not call you a fan. He calls you a fantastic. 
And so he called me that and I was like, what? And he said, you're a fan and you're fantastic. So that makes you a fantastic. <laughs> and so on his table laid out were all these different eight by tens of him. Uh, some of them were movie stills from Rocky Horror. Some of them were different things like Spin City. And alongside them, there were also a little collection of clay pendants. And it turns out that he hand makes those in his spare time. And it says, be it on one side. And then it just says, Boswick carved in the back. And he told me that I was welcome to choose whichever photo I wanted for him to sign. And I already knew which one I wanted. But before I told him which one, he said, if you choose my favorite photo from here, I'll give you one of these pendants for free. And so I immediately went for my first and only choice, which was the photo of him singing in the floor show, in the fishnets, in the stockings, with the boa and the heels, and he's just grabbing his crotch. <laughs> and without a word, as soon as I indicated that that's the one I wanted, he reached over to the little box of pendants and he just set one down right in front of me, gave it to me for free. And I just, I told him I love him in the floor show. And I also, I asked him about the scene where, and this goes into a, one of the fun facts about the film, how Susan Sarandon accidentally stepped on his foot during the end of the floor show. And his reaction is caught on camera because he kind of winces. And it's kind of really obvious if you know where to look. And I asked him about that. And he said, he actually... He said that someone told him about that, but he doesn't actually remember it happening. So I just think that's kind of funny. And Barry was just awesome. He was just awesome. And then later that night, I was outside the hotel. I saw him and Patricia Quinn walking arm in arm together. And they just looked so sweet, like old friends. And, you know, you can't imagine that they see each other very often, like the Rocky Horror Convention tours and stuff. You know, they only go on for so long and then they live very separate lives in very different parts of the world. So it's it's really adorable to see them together. And then I got to meet Barry again in 2017. Shout out again to Martha, who drove to Dallas with me. This is when we both met Little Nell, Patricia Quinn, Barry Boswick, and Tim Curry. So that was awesome. And this was also the second time that I met Patricia Quinn and Little Nell. And Patricia Quinn, again, was just so amazing. As soon as I walked up to her, she was like, oh my god, look at you! And she she adored my Rocky Horror shirt. And she just told me I looked so cute. And she was wearing this big red lips pin, which if you see her in interviews or at other conventions, that tends to be her signature accessory. She wears it with everything. And she always has these very beautiful, bold outfits on, and I just love her for it. I want to be her when I grow up. And she was just the sweetest all over again. She hugged me up so tight, like like I was family. It was, it was awesome. She's amazing. <laughs> what was great about meeting Barry this time is I walked up to him, and he looked at me, and he, he asked, what do you got? And I asked, what are you selling? <laughs> and then he just laughed. And he wrapped his arms around me and he scooped me up into the biggest hug. 
it oh he was so sweet it was just like when you see an old friend for the first time in a while and we took a photo together and then before we parted he just squeezed my shoulder a little and I said I don't want to let that hug go so he hugged me up again and he kissed me so that was sweet and so I was ravished by Barry Bostwick and I loved it (laughs) so that was story time with Misa I hope you enjoyed. So immediately after Rose Tint My World ends, we get the fanfare, which is our honorable mention. And the curtain lifts, and we find Frankenberger all dolled up in this beautiful red corset with a feather in his hair. And he just looks somehow more glamorous than he has throughout the entire film. And he has an acapella solo. And then as his performance gets a bit more bravado, he jumps into what we find out is a pool and all the smoke clears and we see him just floating on a lifesaver labeled SS Titanic. And he's singing, don't dream it, be it. And then Janet, Brad, Columbia, and Rocky are all captivated by him and they're drawn to him and they all jump into the pool with him. And then they kind of get on route for an orgy (laughs) of sorts. And Dr. Scott gets Medusa, And he's trying to be strong. He's trying to resist. But that's when he discovers that he's wearing stockings and heels. And he actually is kind of into it. And he's singing about it. And then Frank bursts out of the pool, and he starts singing Wild and Untamed Thing, which is another one of our honorable mentions. And then he and the rest of the cast all line up like the Rockettes, and they just start doing, like, dance, dance, kick steps on stage in this empty theater for no one but themselves, and it's just great. It's great. And then things take a turn. So after the floor show, we see Magenta and Riff Raff who like burst in through the theater doors and they're dressed in what we can only assume is like the Transylvania transsexual outfit, you know, traditional garb, I guess is what you would call it. (laughs) Yes. Um, And they have these like amazing looking razor guns that kind of look like, like pitchforks almost, like mini pitchforks. Right? Yes, okay. because and it was intentional because they were referencing the American Gothic painting from earlier where he's holding a pitchfork. Exactly. Thank you. It all ties together, guys. Like this wasn't just some like I mean it was random, but Richard O'Brien thought out like everything. He was mad genius, mad genius. So anyways, um, Riff Ruff and Magenta are like, you know, we are tired of your extravagant ways and we're ready to go back home. And, um, you know, I'm now your master and you're the slave. And Frank goes into this beautiful, beautiful, like heart touching song about how it's time for him to say goodbye. On the day. I went away was all I had to say. You know, he's finally ready or accepting that he's going home. 
Um, and I think maybe to me, this song, like it's so touching. And I feel like maybe in Transylvania, he was not nearly as, um, how can I say this? Like not popular, but you know what I mean? Like maybe people didn't take to him the way they did here on earth and didn't. That's just the vibe the song has always given me. Like I feel just like we see Janet and Brad kind of exploring their different sides of themselves here. I feel like Frank was doing very much the same in a different kind of way though. Like I feel that this song shows us that he's not, because I mean, he's not the same as like Riff Raff and Magenta. And even though they're kind of siblings and weird and we don't know a whole bunch about um Transylvania I just I feel like Frank is different and I feel like maybe Frank got to kind of experiment here while he was on earth with maybe a different type of personality does that make sense I know I'm rambling I'm sorry no actually it makes perfect sense and I think that it's very similar to when you go out of town and you feel bold enough to wear the outfits that you're afraid to wear in your hometown because someone you know might see you. But in a new city, you're completely anonymous and you can get away with whatever you want. And so I think Frank was experimenting with that flexibility on earth. Exactly. And um, one of the lines that he says that like really embodies this to me is like everywhere it's been the same, like I'm outside in the rain free to try and find a gain. This verse to me shows that like exactly what I'm saying. Like everywhere is just kind of like, eh, he's not really special. He just kind of blends in with the crowd. You know, he's just kind of just an ordinary guy in Transylvania. But here on earth, like he really did get to play a different role and be master and, you know, really embody who he is and have people kind of um, worship him, you know, put him on a pedestal. And be like, you know, oh my God, you're so different. Like, and we know people, especially this kind of makes me think of like a cult almost. All of the um, Transylvanians who follow him kind of have him on a pedestal, right? And treat him like he's just this amazing God sense being, right? Yeah. And that's actually a really great simile to use because even in a cult, a lot of the time, the leader is a fraud. The leader is actually just a regular guy who knows how to captivate an audience and who knows how to talk. And when they are on a different planet, Riff Raff, Magenta, and Frank are all very likely equals. But on Earth, again, he got to play with that different role, and they kind of blindly followed him because he had that essence. Absolutely. That's... And so this song is just, it's very different to me. And it kind of, um, this is one of the sadder songs to me in this movie. And it really is like, I can't watch it without crying because Frank is wet and crying and singing to like this fake audience. And you can see Janet and Brad. Um, and they're all kind of like tearing up as they're like kind of holding their chest and having different emotions. I'm going home. And then Riff Raff interrupts and says, oh, you misunderstood me. 
when I said we are returning to Transylvania, I was referring only to Magenta myself. And um, he said, you'll remain here in spirit anyway. And so he pulls out the laser gun and points it at him. And of course, Dr. Scott is like, oh, great heavens, that's a laser. <laughs> and of course, we have, you know, that, that funny little comical relief from a, a serious moment, a serious song. And he's like, you're right. And so he's like, it's a laser capable of emitting, you know, a beam of anti pure, uh, what is it, a pure antimatter, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, Brad and all of them are all of a sudden so concerned, you know, like you're going to kill him. What is his crime? And this was the part that I thought was interesting, though. Um, you know, Dr. Scott was real quick to say, well, he did kill Eddie. You saw what become of Eddie. Society must be protected. And so this made me think like Brad and Janet, of course, have really been captivated by Frank and understand that this is kind of like that the parable that you read and you try to like decide who's guilty and who's not to see um, what kind of logical thinking you have like if you're based on law or if you're based on emotion have you ever done that before Yes, I do remember a similar, like a brief story with four different characters that like one of my college professors told me once. Yes, exactly. So that's what this makes me think of, you know, like that Brad and Janet are very like that emotional, like, well, you know, there's kind of sides. Well, Dr. Scott is very much that like logical thinking, like, no, he, he killed someone, like he's done. Kill him mm -hmm. to the death. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's that's even though you know he's very much enjoying his stockings and whatnot he was real quick to turn over right did you did you feel the same way I do find it interesting that Dr. Scott was was quick to you know agree that Frank should be killed when isn't Scott working with the FBI on UFOs wouldn't he want to take Frank in himself that's exactly that's the other thing I thought about too yeah because he talks about that and he says I'm not here on business I'm here for you know Eddie so I don't know if maybe he decided um or if there's maybe even like an underlying layer that we don't really know like maybe something else is going on and he's being paid off by them or something I don't know but this this whole scene after the song causes lots of thoughts to me it just has some unopened kind of questions for me that I couldn't really find a lot of research on so uh you know if you if you are listening and you have any insight please share because I would love to hear you know some other thoughts or some other people's ideas about this situation this scene um and so it does get this scene does get sad um Columbia does die and then um because Refrock turns around and shoots her and then we see Frank and he like starts to try to climb a curtain and um, Riff Raff shoots, tries to keep shooting at him, but for some reason he misses. And then we see him finally strike him and Frank's so sad, lifeless body just kind of snakes down the curtain. And that's when we see Rocky just full of emotion and so upset. And he like literally crawls over to him and then puts him on his back and cradles his body. And Riff Raff gets so pissed off that, he like cares for him um or at least that's how I take that like right he gets very irritated 
or frustrated, I guess, with Rocky for going over to Frank. He definitely doesn't have any sympathy, for sure. None. Yeah, none. And so we see, you know, um, Rocky, like, literally carries his body up the uh, radio tower. And it's just, it's such a sad scene to me. And, like, Riff Raff just keeps shooting him and shooting him. And, like, Rocky is just, like, taking the blows and climbing with, you know, his master slash creator slash lover's body. And then finally they both just collapse with the tower into the pool. And it just breaks my heart, that whole scene. It is a really sad scene because you finally see that, like, Rocky really did care about Frank and he really did love him. Yes, exactly. And it's it's just it's so sad. And then after that, we do see a moment of Riff Raff like has an emotional two sentences and brad and janet are both like oh my god you killed them and then magenta kind of says like i thought you liked them they liked you and he's like they didn't like me they never liked me and he has like kind of like a a a pang of sadness behind those words like he's very emotional even though he's kind of screaming like i feel like you know it was a very emotional killing in my mind Yes, yes. There's definitely some underlying frustration, some pre-Rocky Horror Picture Show events that built up in Riff Raff's mind that made him think he had to do this. And it's really, it's really sad because all these characters have some kind of vulnerability. And now you just kind of know that Riff Raff just wanted to be liked and respected. And he didn't feel like he was. No, not at all. And then another scene where you see Dr. Scott kind of like you did ride and like kind of puts his hand on him and then he's like you're okay by me um you know and I don't know if he says it because you know well obviously Riff Raff has a laser um (laughs) he doesn't want to die (laughs) right if he doesn't want to die or if he's like literally agreeing with him because then he even says like I'm Riff Raff apologizes for Eddie and Dr. Scott's kind of like well perhaps it was for the best like what the fuck Yes. Yeah, that is that is a little odd. Like Dr. Scott is an interesting character. He is a fucking fake, okay? <laughs> okay, yeah, there's a that. That's one way of saying it too. <laughs> but I do love when Riff Raff goes up to him to apologize. When you're in the audience, Riff Raff says, "Dr. Scott, I'm sorry about your legs." Nephew. Nephew. <laughs> Because there is a pause there, and it's so funny. Yes. It's like begging for someone to say something. (laughs) It's hilarious. And, yeah, so, I mean, then um, the movie is coming to an end, and Riff Raff tells them. And this was funny, too. Like, I feel like he was speaking specifically to Dr. Scott because he tells them to leave while you're still – while it's still possible. Um, And he talks about how they're going to beam the whole house back up to the planet of transsexual. But he doesn't really address Brad and Janet, kind of like he doesn't fucking care what they do until he yells, like, go now. But, I mean, during that time, he really is just talking to Dr. Scott. So that's what led me to think, like, maybe there was something else going on behind the scenes um, that we don't really get to know. Because these are some of those unopened questions, like I said, like, was Dr. Scott in cahoots with Riff Raff and Magenta? Was it all a part of their evil plan to ultimately kill Frank because Frank wasn't following, like, the transsexual way? Well, I don't know. Just all these random thoughts come into my mind, you know? 
Ooh, you are on to some really interesting theories. Right? And so, guys, watch it again and really pay attention because I, I don't know. There's just some weird exchanges between Riff Raff and Dr. Scott in particular. And, I mean, it's quite obvious that they were aware of Dr. Scott because, you know, Frank obviously knew who it was um, when he showed up at the house. And he didn't realize that there was a connection between Eddie. So I'm wondering if maybe Riff Raff somehow found that out and then like planted the seed to mm. whole, you know, death. I don't know. So just a theory, of course, my own theory. No one else has this theory because literally I can't find any research on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I am putting this theory out there. If you agree with me, let me know. If not, that's cool. We can all have our own theories. Um, it's just the way that I take the movies. And I guess that just means like I've seen way too many movies where people like backstab others. So, yeah. So anyways, we get this awesome scene of the castle being beamed up to transsexual. And we see um, Brad and Janet and Dr. Scott, you know, uh, Dr. Scott's actually being carried out. And Brad and Janet barely get away. And then we see them all kind of laying on the ground, scattered as the castle is beamed away into the wonderful transsexual. <laughs> into, space. into space never to be seen again after the house has taken off we find brad and janet are just sprawled out on the ground having seen it go away and out of their lives forever and with this cues up a song that was cut from a lot of versions of this film and it wasn't until, I believe, certain DVD formats and certain DVD editions started releasing the option of watching either the U.S. version or the U.K. version. And if you chose the U.K. version, which you should always do, you'll find yeah. that there is actually an extra song in the film that you may have missed. I did choose this song to cover because, one, I love this song. It's sweet, it's simple, and it leads us right into the end. And, two, a lot of people don't know it exists, or maybe they've forgotten about it. And so I think that it deserves some recognition. And then, of course, three, I feel like it also raises some questions, like Frankie was saying. So, <laughs> as soon as the house takes off, Brad begins to sing Superheroes. I've tried to find the truth. After Brad sings, then we see Janet, and she's just kind of tumbling along on the ground, and she looks out of it, and then she sings her verse. And Then after they both sing, we get this overhead shot of the three of them, and they just look like they're crawling on the earth. They look like they're completely lost. They look aimless, and they look helpless. And then the screen starts to spin and spin and faster and faster until finally the shot transitions to a spinning globe. And it turns out that this globe is in the criminologist's office, also known as the narrator. 
and he reaches out to the globe and he stops it. And then he looks at the camera and he ends the song with a speaking verse. And crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race. This song really changes my perspective of Brad. And this goes into that theory that I've been referring to this entire time. Um, so naturally, the first time I saw this movie, Superheroes was cut. What about you? Did you see it first without it? Yes, I did see it first without it. Um, because the first time I did watch it, it was actually, I'm pretty sure it was on VH1. Um, and then my dad surprised me with the DVD because this was before Blu-rays. And I was like, oh, what's the UK version? And so we watched that one. Um, and then I was like, wait, that's when I noticed it. Oh, several differences, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so the song being inserted back in is one of the bigger notable differences. And so naturally, I too, when I got the DVD, I would watch the UK version because at first I was curious. But then I realized it was because of some of the additions that they made. And so... After I saw the added song, by the way, again, called Superheroes, and I heard the lyrics, it really made me begin to doubt that Brad was telling the truth. Because if you think about it, it was his idea to visit Dr. Scott. He was the driver. He went the wrong way. He didn't fix the spare tire. He offered to go to the house alone and mm -hmm. let Janet stay in the car. He's the one who, throughout the movie... He switches from saying he got a flat tire to saying his car broke down. So he's starting to lie. Ooh. And then finally, in Superheroes, his verse literally says, I've done a lot. God knows I've tried to find the truth. I've even lied. And that made me wonder if, if Frank really was onto something and if maybe Brad and Dr. Scott really were in cahoots. And so this song just changes a lot of the scenes and a lot of Brad's dialogue for me. I love Brad. I think he's hilarious. I think Barry is love. But after you think about these things over and over and you rewatch Rocky Horror, you kind of look at Brad a little bit differently, in my opinion. No, I absolutely agree. So ch check that out, guys. Go watch it again and watch Brad closely. It might give something away. I chose this song because I feel like it's so criminally underrated. And the reason why it wasn't in the movie is because, according to the fan club site, in completing the stereo portion of the movie, certain deadlines were imposed and it wasn't possible from the production end to include superheroes. So this song really gives us Brad and Janet's forever changed perspectives of life. Like, nothing will ever be the same. They've met Frank, and that will never change. It reminds me of the quote from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it said, uh, the very beginning where the narrator says, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. And I almost wish there wasn't a sequel to this movie because, you know, then more shit happens with Brad and Janet, and it's just, it's wacky, to say the least. <laughs> But regardless of the verses by Brad and Janet, I even wonder about the criminologist because the way he smirks when he says some insects called the human race and then he just kind of smiles, 
it made me wonder if he was an alien the whole time too. That is absolutely great. I did actually find a theory that kind of fits into what you're saying um, about the criminologist being also an alien. It's actually the theory that Frankenfurter is aware that there's an audience and he's actually making a documentary about Earthlings. I saw that theory too. It was on Reddit. Yeah. Yes. That's interesting too. So funny. And so it kind of ties in because the criminologist in there says the line and he's saying it because he is an alien. That was one of the last uh, bullet points on there. And I thought that was so interesting because I had never thought that, but that would make sense sense for him saying that line Mm -hmm. so funny so Mm -hmm. funny because if you listen to him say it and just watch his expression he almost says it like he's talking down on them some insects called the human race lost in time and lost in space Like, he says it kind of cynically, but, like, he he just has a way about it. And it just, it always, always made me look at him a little sideways. I love it. And with that, the criminologist walks away from the camera, turns out the light, and leaves us with the glowing globe in his office. End credits. And that, guys, is one of the most amazing movies with... A phenomenal soundtrack. Indeed. And the song that takes us out with the ending credits is the science fiction double feature reprise, which is our final honorable mention. Shall we do some fun facts? Yes. Some fun facts about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the production, the film, and the legacy. In an interview, Richard O'Brien says that he believes that this movie has such a lasting effect because it is a retelling of one of the oldest fairy tales in the world, that being the story of Adam and Eve, with Janet and Brad being Adam and Eve and the serpent being Frankenfurter. So deep. And I agree with him. This movie is like, it's, it's timeless. It's very much a, um, you know how Romeo and Juliet is told over and over again in different styles? Yeah, yeah. I feel like the Rocky Horror characters and the plot can can be like that kind of template for future stories, if you will. Totally. So instead of people just like completely redoing it, and I mean, I know we talked about this, how like the time warp again is a little bit different, um, but I would love to see someone do like what you said with Shakespeare like Romeo and Julia, and taking it and really making it like modern day, modern day, um, kind of like Othello with the movie O. Yes, that Mackay Pfeiffer, Julia Stiles movie. I would love to see someone take like Rocky Horror and really, really take the core of the movie and turn it into something totally modern, um, like a totally different twist. Like that's the shit that I would totally love to see. I don't particularly love to see remakes of it. I want to see like a totally different, like it was inspired by this movie. Um, I don't like, I don't know. For me, the remakes, I, I can't really get into them just because like I said, I personally keep this movie on such a high pedestal. 
Um, but I would love to see someone do that kind of thing with this movie. Uh, so the makeup artist for this film was a man named Pierre LaRoche, and he also did makeup for David Bowie during his glam rock Ziggy Stardust days. <sighs> and Pierre went on to tour with the Rolling Stones as Mick Jagger's personal makeup artist, and he also did the makeup for Daryl Hall and John Oates for the cover photo of the Silver album. Amazing. And speaking of, didn't Mick Jagger express interest in playing Frank? Yes, there was also, yeah, there was that. Can you imagine? No. At no, all. I <laughs> no, I really, I mean, I love Mick Jagger, but I just feel like it wouldn't be, um, I don't know. I just feel like it wouldn't be a right fit. I I can see where you're coming from, and I think a lot of it might have to do with, like, Mick Jagger undoubtedly has moves and the voice, but I'm not sure if he has the acting chops. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> and that's a big aspect of Frank. Oh, for sure. Because even though um, Tim Curry was so, he's such a method actor, and he completely, completely completely embodied frank yeah i agree it's 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 hard to imagine again that it would have been anyone else yeah yeah and i know i've said that a million times but he's just <laughs> phenomenal so. that's just how true it is <laughs> <laughs> in case you forgot he's amazing <laughs> Here's a fun fact that I consider probably one of my favorites. The production stills for the film were shot by photographer Mick Rock, who is a decorated photographer and whose portfolio includes the likes of David Bowie, Debbie Harry of Blondie, Queen, The Ramones, Lou Reed, Joan Jett, Daryl Hall and John Oates, and Iggy Pop. Uh, what a list. That's cool. Actually, I when I was in Seattle and I went to the Museum of Pop Culture, there was an exhibit for David Bowie specifically, mm -hmm. and a lot of this guy's work was on display, including photos of Debbie Harry and Frankenfurter, and it was pretty freaking cool. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Before being cast as Brad Majors, Barry Boswick was on Broadway, originating the role of Danny Zuko in Greece. Rehearsal for the Rocky Horror Picture Show lasted two and a half weeks. And then the actual filming took six weeks. Yes. It doesn't sound like a lot of time. It doesn't. They worked nonstop, nonstop. And they worked through everything. Like Susan got sick. She caught pneumonia. They all caught some degree of sickness. Um, but they were just so dedicated to the film that they all kept pushing through. And, you know, they just wanted to get to that ending, the end in sight and finishing this film in time for it to premiere. Oh, this is a cool fun fact. There is a screenwriter who lives in Hollywood by the name of Alan Sharp, and he is the man who bought the statue of Naked Little Nell from the movie, and he has her in his garden. Oh. Well, that is fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Meatloaf still owns the vest that he wore when he played Eddie. Oh, I love that. And Peter Hinwood actually stumbled upon the gold Speedo that he wore as Rocky, and he sold it to the Hard Rock Cafe for $1,000. I thought only 1000 Wow. I would not have figured it would be that little amount. That's kind of sad. 
and not very sentimental. Yeah, yeah. I've I've read that he is he's not ter- it's not that he's ashamed of the movie necessarily, but he just kind of refers to it as an experience, a time in his life and he hasn't acted since and mm-hmm. he didn't act before and so he's just kind of living in obscurity now. I think he owns like an antique shop or something of the like. Well, good for him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good guy. Costume, hair, and the overall style in the film is said to have inspired the punk rock look. So the leather jackets, the fishnets, the chains and pins, and the dark makeup, it's all said to have inspired that kind of punk rock look that took over for a while. Definitely. And I also think, and I know Richard has said this, that it also inspired people to not really care about the gender norms. Um, or sticking to gender roles because he doesn't particularly care about that. And I know that we've already talked about Frank being pansexual, but he's very much a believer. Like if you want to wear a dress, wear one, even if you, you know, have hairy legs and, you know, have chest hair. Um, And he's said that multiple times about just being yourself and not caring what society tells you that you have to wear because you have a penis or you don't. Um, which I absolutely love. And I think that that's another reason why we talked about why this is so big in the LGBTQ plus community. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. The budget for costumes was 1,600 US dollars. Many of the costumes from the stage play were reused, as well as some old props and set pieces from movie productions. For example, the tank that Rocky is born in was also used in The Revenge of Frankenstein. Which is so epic. Which is really cool. When asked if he knew any of the shout-out lines or had a favorite, Barry Bostwick said that one thing is always for sure, and then the audience immediately shouted, asshole, and he got up from his chair, and he said, you know, to you, I am your assholiness, all right? And don't you forget that. I love it. (laughs) He's hilarious. Also, when he was asked if he had a favorite song from the movie, he said, all the songs of mine that were cut. (laughs) They did very wrong, guys. (laughs) They they did. They did in a way. Um, But I mean, he still he still got to show off his voice and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was actually like, I can't believe that Steve Martin was almost considered for the role of Brad. And we wouldn't have Barry. It's I still can't even really watch Little Shop of Horrors because Steve Martin just doesn't seem like right in that. Right. <laughs> I a thousand percent agree. So this would be an even way more off. I don't. Yeah, no. The, the movie is totally perfect. <laughs> in every single way. Some names that you may recognize as being part of the stage show of Rocky Horror in the past include Sally Jesse Raphael, Jerry Springer, Gilbert Gottfried, and Dick Cavett as the criminologist slash narrator. Luke Perry once played Brad Majors, and Anna Gasteyer from SNL once played Columbia, and Sebastian Bach was Riff Raff. Wow, and um, also some other people that we didn't mention yet. Uh, Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito also played the criminologist. That's awesome. 
in the 35th anniversary. And that's also the um, anniversary special that George Lopez played Dr. Scott. Oh my God, that's fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Would never even think of it, but now I can totally see it. Absolutely. And so if you haven't seen that one, I, I would tell you, like, I, I've seen pretty much all of these anniversary shows just because I, I really enjoy watching them, even though I know that I'm, you know, a little biased towards the original. I still like to watch it just because then I like to say like, oh, no, it's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> I say it every time. <laughs> Because you've, you've been hearing the soundtrack the same way for so long. It's, it's, it's on a pedestal. Yes. And I know I say that so many times, but it's, it's just it's hard for me. So, I mean, I still give them a chance. I still listen to it. So, that counts. In 1999, from January to May, Tiffany Theater in West Hollywood, California, hosted productions of the Rocky Horror Show, and Frankenfurter was played by former WCW champion David Arquette. What? I fucking love him now more than ever. Now that I did not know. That is really cool. How fucking cool is that? <laughs> like my movie geek Wrestling heart is exploding. <laughs> that wins. You win the fun fact because that is amazing. <laughs> I felt uh, I felt really good typing that up. <laughs> this was cool about Meatloaf and his uh, integration into the show. In case you guys weren't sure how Meatloaf ended up as Eddie. During the rehearsals in West Hollywood for the play, Meatloaf says that for the first two weeks, they just rehearsed the music, which I think most musicals do. I remember in high school when we did musicals, we spent the first two weeks just in the choir room. Did you? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. So that's, that's, that sounds pretty much like protocol. And so with that, like they didn't have the full script when Meatloaf was first rehearsing the play, but it wasn't until they started to rehearsed the non-musical part of the play that Meatloaf got the script and he realized like the plot was really weird and he was kind of weirded out by it and then finally the day came where he saw Tim Curry perform Sweet Transvestite in Fishnets and he walked out of rehearsal and he refused to be in the play and he admits that like at the time he was really naive and sex jokes would fly over his head and he just wasn't getting it but the producers were able to talk him down and they managed to convince him like oh no like just 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 try on the fishnets just try them on because obviously in the play he had to play Dr. Scott and he has that scene where Dr. Scott is revealed to be wearing stockings right <laughs> and so Meatloaf was really adamant about not really wanting to wear them but he went ahead and got coerced into trying them on. And then finally came the part where he had to start doing kickups with his legs in stockings as Dr. Scott. And he said the moment his leg just went up in the air, the audience went crazy with laughter. And even Tim Curry, who he considers the most professional actor of all, even Tim Curry broke on stage and started laughing with them. And Meatloaf says that ever since then, he has never before or since heard an audience laugh that much, ever. Wow. 
What an amazing feeling. Right? What a funny story. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, and I can't, like, so, see, it's not just us. Meatloaf holds Tim Curry up on a pedestal, too. Yeah, which I think is so sweet. And I remember when, I believe it was Entertainment Weekly who got them together and did, a, like, a mini photo shoot. Uh, Meatloaf was a part of it, along with Tim, Barry, Susan, and Patricia. Do you remember that one? No. Which one was that? I want to say it was Entertainment Weekly, but it was the photos of the five of them, and they're sitting in a movie theater, and they they look like they're watching a movie. Okay, I'm lying. Yes, 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 I do. Yes, and so even then, like, I love that Meatloaf comes together with them for stuff like that. I think it's I think it's awesome that he embraces the legacy and and the part of Eddie and for the for a time the part of Dr. Scott too. I know he was a little miffed when he didn't get to play Dr. Scott in the film. He said they thought they made a mistake, but <laughs> I think they actually went well with their decision. And I do want to say guys that even this shows that people who have been in the show have had their doubts about it. But once they actually really give it a chance, you learn that this is such a universal movie. Like, regardless of where you are in your life, regardless of your religion, gender, creed, whatever, um, you can find something that you love and can take away from this movie. You're exactly right. And just like we've been saying this whole time, where you can take this movie and interpret it however you want, and it'll fit into your life a certain way. Like, no two people watch the same movie when they watch Rocky Horror. Yeah, case in point, me and Issa. We talk back and forth, and even though we've seen it hundreds of times, we're sitting here and we both have different theories or different thoughts because of our experiences. And that's a beautiful thing that we can come together and share those. It reminds me of that Dave Grohl quote when he said, um, you can sing a song to 80,000 people and they'll sing it back for 80,000 different reasons. That's so beautiful. Thank you, Dave. Wise man, Dave. I know you listen to us. Oh, yeah. He def- yeah, he definitely tunes in, for sure. <laughs> the mansion that the movie was filmed in does still function as a hotel these days, and they do host Rocky Horror weddings. So that's cool. We need to visit that hotel. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh, please. Put it on the bucket list. It's on the bucket list, for sure. I can't wait. And speaking of bucket lists, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is number two on Entertainment Weekly's Top 50 Cult Films of All Time. And it is also featured on the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die list by Steven Schneider. Yes. So if they say you have to watch it before you die, then you have to watch it before you die, guys. Yeah. For serious. For serious. I mean, it's award-winning, guys. You gotta see it. You gotta see it. I think that's about it. My God. For me. I think I think you covered everything. I think we did really good covering all those really fun details. Whew. Yeah. And if we miss anything, guys, just share it. Share it on Instagram. You can send a message to Misa on the blog, and we can add it in. How you know? Fun options. So, guys, right after you are done listening to this two-part episode. <laughs> We invite you to visit the link in our Instagram profile at Hey Soundtrack City is our Instagram. 
click the link, you will find our blog, you will find our master playlist where all these songs will go. And we appreciate you listening to us and taking time out of your day to indulge. Yes, hopefully we brought some smiles to your face and brought some different theories to your mind. And reminded you of good memories of the past with Rocky Horror. Yes, pre-COVID Rocky Horror days. That's where it's at. Mm, it seems so long ago. Memories. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. Anyway, guys, I think that does it for us, Frankie. I'm good. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We appreciate you guys listening. Like Jesus said, don't forget to check out the blog, the Instagram. And uh, make sure you are following our playlist because they are updated with every episode and you can jam all of the songs that we mentioned, not just the ones that we've talked about in great detail, but also the honorable mentions. Yes, guys. Don't forget to honor those mentions. All right, guys. Thank you again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Go watch the movie. Go do the time warp again. Thanks for making us one. Yay! Happy anniversary to us! <laughs> All right, guys. Until next time, my name is Frankie. And I'm Misa. Bye, guys. Good night, and have a pleasant tomorrow.